ladies and gentlemen of all ages, boys and girls. Thank you for tuning in to yet another episode of Angry Meat Production. We appreciate you coming in and letting us be a part of your lives week in and week out. We hope to do our best to present you with something that your eardrums delight in. Whether you're looking at us on YouTube or Rumble, or listening to us on Spotify, Google, or Anchor, or any of the other podcast services that we are currently on or trying to get on, we thank you. And if you don't mind, at the end of every episode, stop by, leave us a comment, leave us a like. If it asks for five stars, we'll take five stars, even if you don't like us. Five stars are what it's all about. With that being said, we hope you enjoy our attempt to make our advocation our vocation. Ladies and gentlemen, let the games begin. Welcome, Angry Fable. Today on What the Hell, we're going to talk with Brian English. Uh, he's a guy I met at Vet Fest uh, last Saturday. This will be on Sunday, like two weeks ago. So it's it was two weeks. Uh, but he he came up with me. He he told me about his uh, overcoming of uh, addiction and uh, overcoming suicide. And uh, because of the holiday season, I felt it would be appropriate for everybody to get that uh, knowledge that you can overcome and look for the next day instead of just looking at the moment and how horrible it is right then and there. I mean, I've had horrible days to where. That shotgun probably tasted really good, but I decided to just put it out on my mis- uh put it out on the uh side and just wait on the next day. I almost messed up on that one. But anyways, go ahead, tell us your story, buddy. Uh, like you said, uh, my name is Brian English. Um, I'm a veteran. I uh, served two tours in Iraq. Uh, my first tour was during the invasion for 12 months, and my second tour was uh, 07 to 08, and it was a 15 month tour. Um, and, uh, really the, the story kind of begins, you know, when I was a child, um, you know, I had, I had come to faith, uh, you know, cause faith is part of my recovery. Uh, I'd come to faith in Christ when I was about seven years old and I lived a pretty biblical life, I guess, as a kid. Um, and, um, but I saw a lot of legalism in the church and I saw a lot of hypocrisy in the church. And so as I got older and I got into high school and then into college, uh, I started to walk away uh, from the church. And then I'd always planned on joining the military. Uh, While I was in high school, I was in JROTC and then in college, I was in ROTC and then 9-11 happened. I actually remember I was sitting in uh, Texas history class at UT Arlington and uh, one of the people stood up in the back of the room and said, a plane just flew into the World Trade Center. And so uh, he was listening to it on his um, uh, earbuds or whatever it was he was wearing. And so the class was immediately dismissed. And I went over to the student center and just in time to see the second plane hit the second World Trade Center. Oh, damn. And, and I was in uniform, actually. It was one of my ROTC days because I was in ROTC in college. And so I was actually in uniform and I looked down and I thought to myself, well, we're going to war because <laughs> one plane's an accident, two planes is an act of war. And uh, so I kind of got the conviction after that that I needed to enlist. And so um, I enlisted with the intention of being available 
uh, in the reserves if I need if I was needed, but continue my college career uh, and continue to get a degree and become an officer. But then uh, after uh, in July of 2002 is when I went to basic training. And when I came back, I was in college and again for maybe a couple of months. And then we got a warning order that we were going to be part of the invading force. And so we I dropped out you know, of college and we started preparing and training for the mission. That tour was pretty uneventful for me, particularly. It was just, it was regimented, you know, did, um, we did uh, route route security, route recon, different things like that. As I was a military police officer. So we did a lot of combat support roles, convoy support and stuff like that. Um, so not a whole lot what happened on, on that tour because we didn't have any up-armored vehicles. All the up-armored vehicles went to active duty. So, but when I came back from that tour, uh, I wasn't adjusting well to civilian life as far as structure goes, because I had just gone through basic training and then a year long deployment where everything was really regimented. And I think that's when, I mean, no PTSD at this time, but I think that's where I started to see, looking back now, see signs of, you know, an addictive personality because I was at a friend's house, we were having a party and kind of like a welcome home party. And we were having, you know, drinks, you know, and having a good time. And then this kid shows up and we knew him, uh, you know, I'm 20 at this time. And uh, this kid shows up that I knew from my brother, through my brother, they had gone to high school together. And he was named, he was affectionately known as Skeletor because he was super, super skinny, but he was always bumming you know, alcohol or weed or whatever my friends were doing. He was always bumming it off of them. And so he wanted to hang out with us. So I told him, I was like, that's fine. You can hang out. You're at my friend's house though. So you're going to, if you're going to throw up, if you drink too much and you're going to throw up, you know, you've got two places you can throw up and that's either in the toilet, in the house or in the gutter, in the street. You're not going to throw up on his yard or in his, on his sidewalk. So the party was going on and everything was fine. Um, and I'm sitting in the garage talking to my friend. You know, he did upholstery for classic cars. And so he was working on some upholstery. And then one of my other friends comes around the corner and says, uh, hey, Brian, Skeletor is puking in the yard. And so out of nowhere, um, I got angry. I got really, really angry. Um, and so I went over and I leaned down real close next to his ear. And I said to him, uh, I, I told you, I effing told you, you know, where, what did I tell you? And he said, don't throw up in the yard. And so I said, effing right. I said, I said, you, you throw up in the toilet or, on, or in the street and you broke that rule. And so I ended up picking the kid up by his neck um, and dragging him down to the bottom of the driveway and just threw him into the street. And of course he was so drunk that he couldn't catch himself. And so he like, face first into the asphalt. And at the time, Dang. at that moment, I was so, yeah, at, the, at that moment, I was so drunk uh, that I just didn't care at that point. Um, and, uh, you know, I just saw him as somebody who broke the rules and he deserved what he got. And the next morning when I woke up, it hit me what I had done and who I had, you know, was becoming. And so I was like, man, I, Clearly, I need more more structure and I need more discipline because I don't want to be that guy. So I went and I re-enlisted to go active duty. And then uh, when I went active duty, I ended up going to Fort Riley, Kansas, 
uh, with a 977th MP company out there. And uh, we did a lot of training. Uh, we went down to Fort Polk uh, for to help some other units train up for their deployments to Iraq. And uh, good old JRTC, huh? Yeah, yeah, good old Fort Polk JRTC. <laughs> and we uh, we ended up uh, down there right before Katrina hit. And so there's a you know as they got the reports that Katrina was on its way, they debated whether they were going to keep us there and hunker us down and then have us be part of the response or if they were going to send us back. And they ultimately decided to send us back so that we could refit our supplies and they were going to give our company a, a warning order to stand by and be ready to come down to assist in the recovery after Katrina. So as we're flying out, the hurricane is literally like behind our plane. <laughs> like we're flying out like we're the last plane out of Nam. <laughs> <laughs> how was that and, right? uh, yeah they and they you know and, and it was you know and the, but the pilot you know told us that you know he, the the hurricane's right behind us so we're going to take it's going to be a quick takeoff and so we did and we made it back to kansas uh we got the warning order but we ended up not deploying but shortly after that uh maybe about a, a few months i think after that we got uh, some intel that or some or a warning order that we were going to be preparing to deploy to Iraq on a uh, police transition training. And so uh, we spent about eight or nine months, I believe, training up to assist the Iraqis in um, training them to become better law enforcement. Uh, during that time, we you know conducted a couple of F, uh, field training exercises that we call FTXs. I'm sure you guys know, but uh, for your listeners. And uh, while we were on this FTX, this one of the last ones, um, I was a sergeant at the time. I, I was a team leader. And a guy in my squad uh, named Brian Ritzberg, uh, he came up to me. He was not in my team, but he was in one of the other teams. But but for some reason, he felt like he could confide in me. So one night after we'd gotten done with our missions, uh, we're standing out by an air conditioner and I'm having a cigarette and he's... Uh, comes up to me and goes, hey, Sergeant English, I need to uh, need to tell you something. I said, all right, man, what's up? And he said, uh, well, I've been having these dreams. I've been having these dreams that I'm going to die in Iraq. And I was like, dude, that, that's not, and I knew in my gut that nobody in my squad, and we called it Marlowe's squad, we were like, nobody, because Sergeant Marlowe was our squad leader, like nobody in Marlowe's squad is going to uh, die. I can I tell you that without any kind of hesitation. I know you're not supposed to say that, but I know in my gut nobody in Marlowe's squad's going to die. And tried to comfort him and that we had told him he had, we had his back. And um he was one of those soldiers that that you know he 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 took a little extra time to come into his own as a soldier, but right there towards the end of training, you could see. You know he was making progress he was finally making that progress and turning into that soldier that 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 we all knew he could be well when he went on leave when we went on that uh, block leave before uh deployment he uh he ended up supposedly accidentally dropping an air conditioning unit on his hand um while they were installing it at one of his family members houses there's there was rumor and suspicion that he dropped it on his hand on purpose so that he wouldn't deploy but at the time, in 2007, 2008, they had the facilities where we were going, and because we, we were going up to Kirkuk Regional Air, Air Base, so it was really built up, you know, by that time. And so, you know, they had the facilities to rehab him, so he deployed anyway. 
And uh, once his hand was healed, uh, well, actually, let me backtrack a little bit. Well, we got to uh, Kuwait uh, for the last little bit of training before we went into Iraq. Um, there were some personnel issues in our platoon. And so the platoon sergeant and the lieutenant decided that they were going to do some swapping around. And so Ritzburg was moved out of my squad into one of the other squads. Uh, and one of their person, you know, personnel were moved into uh, my squad. Um, at there was, I, I found out later through therapy uh, what I did to try to prevent that from happening. But um, a lot of what my issue with PTSD and, and a lot of the things that came up later on uh, was because I didn't remember how much I'd actually fought to keep him. Uh, and I'll go into details about that a little later. But he was switched. Uh, when he rehabbed, he, he he was a gunner for his squad, and their their job was to train the uh, major crimes unit in Kirkuk. And their squad leader was screaming to you know to heaven that he needed barriers, you know Texas barriers, Jersey barriers, Alaska barriers. Which for those of your crowd that may not or of your audience that may not know, uh, there's different size barriers that are made of like solid cement and rebar. And they help to deflect blasts up and away, uh, and they prevent vehicles. You know, when you you set them up correctly, and it's like a serpentine pattern and stuff like that, it makes it very difficult for a vehicle to move quickly uh, into your location if it's a vehicle-borne uh, improvised explosive device. And so they didn't have any at this major crimes unit. It was basically a straight shot from the street into the major major crimes unit. Really, um, and he. Yeah, and he had been screaming for months, you know, to to logistics to get him Jersey barriers out there immediately because, you know, they're completely a vulnerable target and being a major crimes unit, like they're investigating serious crimes. And so they're a hot target. And the Army, in its wisdom, did not um, allocate the the barriers that that he needed. And one day a dump truck, a dump truck, like construction dump truck. Uh, yeah. vehicle born vehicle born IED uh, came flying in and blew up in the entryway in the, the like the courtyard entryway of the of the MCU and um, you know screwed up a lot of the people in the squad well Ritzburg was I think he was from what I was told he was like one of the closest ones like his truck was one of the closest ones to the blast his driver actually uh, the the dash of the Humvee came down and had pinned his legs from the explosion, pinned his legs uh, between the seat and the dash. And um, Ritzburg, of course, he was, you know, he, he could only protect himself so much being the gunner and he couldn't get down in time before he realized what was going on. And he got pretty messed up. Well, the driver would later recount that he tried to get to Ritzburg and tried to help Ritzburg, but because he was pinned, he couldn't move. He couldn't get him. And so, you know, that's, you know, I'm sure he's, you know, hopefully he's gotten help for, for some of that, whatever that, you know, caused as far as his PTSD. But um, one of the, uh, one of the other squads in our company was in the area and they were called to, you know, QRF, uh, which again, for those who aren't, aren't aware of the acronym, it's quick, uh, quick response force. And so they were called to QRF over the, to that area and they began to work on him. And, uh, you know, especially Ritzburg, because he was one of the ones that was most, most injured. And, you know, they, you know, the people who were inside the MCU, the, uh, the soldiers inside the MCU that were meeting with the police, you know, they had 
got their bell rung pretty good, but they came out and they started working on their guys. And then the other squad showed up and they started, you know, getting, doing a buddy, aid, first aid and buddy aid. And they were able to get tourniquets put on Ritzburg and get, you know, pressure bandages put on and stuff like that. And they were able to high speed it back to uh, the region, you know, Kirkuk Regional Air Base. Uh, I had heard about it when I was in, I was in the talk, which is for the, again, another acronym, Tactical Operations Center. I was in the talk at the time when the radio call came over over the net and you know knew exactly you know when they when they said what team was hit and what squad was hit i knew you know exactly who it was and um i ran out to uh where the the medical facility that we had there at kirkuk and uh was basically trying to you know um conduct traffic control to get everybody out of the way so that when the squad came in they could come in straight without any kind of you know blockage and so when they came in, they came flying in, um, immediately got Ritzburg into the OR. Uh, and I'm, you know, at this point, like I'm I'm seriously concerned because the way they had to take them in and I'm standing outside the, the OR in the hallway and every time they'd open the door and seeing them working on him, um, you know, just trying to keep his, keep his you know blood pressure up, trying to, you know, get him blood. And um, they actually put out an all call for, um, the entire uh, base uh, that, you know, for blood because they needed, because they knew they were going to need a lot of blood for him. And uh, it, <laughs> one of the, it was one, it, it, both angering, sad and beautiful things I've ever seen in my life because everybody in that base that was not, you know, on mission or, you know, on duty, everybody showed up. They surrounded the, <laughs> They surrounded the uh, the medical center, I think, a couple of times with their line. Like it was just, I, I couldn't donate because I'm O positive, and he was, I believe, A positive, so it wouldn't, I wouldn't, or wasn't able to donate. So that kind of, you know, messed with me a little bit. But it was, it was, it was moving to see that for sure. Well, the doctor was able to get him stabilized, um, and they got a medevac. And they got him loaded into the you know the Black Hawk, and they were going to get him down to try to get him down to Balad for further treatment. And so you know we stood by as he was being rolled out. We saw him, we you know rolled out. You know we were standing on either side of him as he was getting on the uh, you know they were loading him on the chopper. And um, then we all went uh, and went to the gym and just kind of stood by, just waiting to hear what a word as to what happened. And finally, later that night, our commander came in and said that uh, Ritzburg had passed on the way to Balad. And I had never, like, I thought that, you know, the rage that I felt whenever I had thrown that kid in the street was a lot. I can't even describe the amount of rage I felt when I heard that news, as well as guilt uh, when I felt, I heard that news, because in that moment when he said that Ritzburg passed, I remember what I said to him in, at the FTX. And while technically it was true that nobody in Marlowe's squad died, that didn't help him any because, yeah. you know, he, he had been switched out of the squad. And so uh, while technically my gut, you know, was right, it I still felt like, you know, crap. And I was angry and I felt guilty and that I couldn't help him. And in fact, uh, some of the other team leaders and I ended up leaving the gym 
going to one of the bunkers uh, outside the gym, sitting down and having cigarettes. And I actually remember looking at one of the guys that I was with and saying, all I want to do right now is get, you know, as much ammo as I can and just load it on my vest as much as possible, get two uh, M249 saws and just lay waste to everybody and anybody I see outside the wire. It doesn't matter at this point. Because in my mind at that time, I was so angry because how do you create a dump truck V-bid and nobody know? Somebody in that town knew and didn't say anything. Somebody in that town, because that was it was a local dump truck. It wasn't something that came from out of town. It was one of the ones that was local to that area. So some, some people knew um, and, and nobody nobody came forward and said anything. So I was angry at the end, but I didn't do it. I wanted to, but I didn't. Um, yeah, we'd be having a different kind of conversation. Yeah, I, I wouldn't be. I wouldn't be in workout gear right now. That's for sure. <laughs> but, um, but yeah. So um, I stuffed it down. You know, the the guilt and the anger, uh, and 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 all of that, and completed the tour. Uh, we ended up um, getting extended because the army forgot we were in country. Big surprise there. <laughs> we that, uh, that we never happens. We, yeah, we uh, talking about. Yeah, it was funny. Did they at least give you? Did they at least give you hot A's before the bad news? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I don't think anybody. I don't think you know anybody was kind of. It wasn't something that was really expected because like we had in six months we had completed the entire mission that they had given us. Like we had checked off every box. The IPs were you know at the level where they were just needing general supervision and not any more training. And so our commander had called uh at branch and asked hey you know is there any way we can get our relief early since we've completed our mission and they're like who are you like 977th mps out of fort riley kansas and they're like we don't have a record of you being in country (laughs) so not only are you not going to be yeah not only are you yeah so ritzberg died and he did they don't have a record of him being in of us being in country so that was that that was a very you know kind of upsetting in and of itself uh, that you were you're you're like the super super secret organizer right yeah talk about some plausible deniability right? yeah so um but yeah so they said, not only are you not coming home early but we're going to give you the mission that you w- that would have been the follow-on mission and then we're going to stand up a unit out of germany and they're going to come relieve you uh in about eight months so you're gonna your 12 month tour is turned into a 15 month tour when your mission was accomplished in six months so yeah that was that was fun that 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 is uh, the personification of the old adage, and I know you and I were both army, so yeah, you, you do a good job and you do it well enough that you're going to get somebody else's job. Yep, they're going <laughs> to add it to yours. Not not that you're going to move jobs; they're just going to add that job to your job. <laughs> that you're yeah, already. You remember they used to tell us like, "There's no individuality in the military," but the you know the higher ups would always look at you and be like, "Hey, you." Yeah, you know, you're the guy. Hey, you come here. You know. <laughs> you, you're that guy. Come here. Yeah. <laughs> like, Absolutely. But uh, so towards the end of that deployment, um, things had kind of settled down. We had gotten, you know, the lay of the land. We had our informants and we had, you know, we were gathering intel and arresting IPs and arresting Iraqi army people that were part of the insurgency and whatnot. So things had kind of settled down in our in our region. And I remember reading a book. Uh, I want to say it was called Dominion. It's a Christian fiction novel about spiritual warfare. And in the book, um, again, at this at this time in my life, I'm not really a practicing Christian, but I'm starting to feel a pull uh, back to God 
in during this deployment, you know, with all the stress and everything that was going on. And in the book, it talks about uh, how our, you know, our our fight is not with, you know, flesh and blood, but the principalities and, you know, spiritual, you know, fight. And I decided, you know, I, I, cause I, one of the other things I saw during that deployment was we got called out to a murder in one of the towns in the, in the Rashad Valley. That's where our IPs were stationed was in Rashad Valley. And we went to one of those towns and it was a beheading. Uh, the report that we got was that there had been five murderers uh, in the, in this town and that the bodies were piled in uh, the town square. So we responded with the IPs, but given the chance for booby traps and whatnot, um, the uh, squad leader, you know, had a up armored Humvee because I was in an ASV. For those who don't know what an ASV, it's armored security vehicle. It's um, a four wheeled vehicle that has like angular designs. It's it's like a precursor to the MRAP, but it's okay. more. It looks more like um, what was the, what was those vehicles the infantry used? Uh, strikers. Yeah, it looked a lot more like a striker than it did an MRAP, uh, but it was four wheels. Uh, we had Mark 19, 50 cal on it, and then your 240 Bravo sat on a mount just outside the hatch as a tertiary weapon if needed. But um, anyway, so I, I was a team leader for one of those trucks, and so he took one of the Humvees. Well, I guess the smell was so bad uh, that one of the guys in the truck wasn't able to continue circling the bodies, and so he sent the truck. The squad leader came back with the truck and then had me dismount and go with him. I couldn't smell anything. Uh, I've, I've never been able to smell a dead body. I, and I, I count that as a blessing because I've heard stories. Yeah, from people. It, yeah, you, you, you it's uh, pretty bad. Me, me and uh, uh, me and another guy was talking about that because I have, I've, I've had as I've had a couple of dead bodies that I had uh, deal with one with corrections and another doing mortuary, and I can smell roadkill from a mile away, mm -hmm. and I can smell burnt flesh from either farther. Uh, but it was, it's just one of those smells that your brain just picks up automatically and it sucks. Yeah. And, and, and because of how our brain works to where any kind of, uh, uh, sensory, uh, happens to you, like, you know, uh, smell, sight, sound, or even touch or taste, mm -hmm. uh, you, one, you get a flashback to what it what it was originally, and then you have to figure out where uh, where this is all out. It, it's an interesting. Uh, when I was doing uh, research on it at one point in time, to uh, to where you know just to figure out my own brain and try to you know even though science scientists can't figure it out, but it's it's interesting to actually uh trying to figure out the most uh elusive uh machine in our body the brain yeah yeah well and it's it's strange because um for me you know like i said because everybody i've ever talked to that smelled the dead body you know talks about you know how horrible it is and how intense it is but even when i was younger when i came back from my first tour my aunt had a seizure and she ended up dying in her apartment and she had been in her apartment for a couple of days before anybody uh -oh. realized that she hadn't she hadn't you know said anything to anybody and which was not uncommon for her for a couple of days not to reach out but then after a couple of days she would you know somebody would reach out to her or she would reach out to somebody else and so um we couldn't get a hold of her and i remember going inside the apartment um 
as they were we as they were kind of wheeling i was kind of moving things around so that the paramedics could wheel her out on the gurney i couldn't smell anything uh but they you know they were they were talking about the smell and i couldn't smell it and then of course with the uh the five dead bodies we were driving around in a circle around the uh where the bodies were looking for lines wires and booby traps and again couldn't smell a thing hmm. and I don't know what it is about my brain. Maybe that part never developed <laughs> in my whole hey, hey, It might have been because, you know, with your first experience with it, it, I mean, your aunt. So maybe your brain was just like, I don't want to associate that with her. Yeah. I don't know. Some, some people just have it to where, uh, like me, I have extra sensory. Mm -hmm. uh, I can smell better than most people. I can, uh, I, I, I can, uh, I used to be able to see better. But uh, age fucks that up. But I, I, I can touch something. I can, uh, like, uh, I was describing the lettering on a envelope and everything, and someone was flipping out, and the and taste buds and everything. Was, <laughs> it, it's it's a strange concept to hear that someone can't. Yeah, well, understand and, that. And I thought that maybe you know after because after that, I mean, when, when, with those bodies, what ended up happening with them was a. Um, not many people realize this, but in, in Iraq, it's not just, uh, you know, Muslims and Christians that are, you know, in the Middle East, but there are sects within, you know, Islam that are satanic, that actually vow their allegiance to what they, who they call shaitan, uh, which is, you know, the same thing for the, in the Christian and uh, Jewish uh, world as Satan. And so and this gins, tribe, what's that? Uh, and gins. Yeah, a lot, well. a lot of people, a lot of people, people associate genies as uh, like uh, American style or European. The yeah. genies is they they associate that with you know make a wish. You get it, but in uh, Aramaic uh, mm -hmm. uh, theology, they uh, or Ephets also they're they're mm -hmm. basically the the darker halves, and they grant your wish, but it also costs you a lot. Yeah, it's we're not we're not talking about Aladdin's genie. <laughs> oh no, oh no! the 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 difference is is night and day, really. Oh, for sure, they're definitely uh, evil creatures, according to the uh, the the Islamic tradition. But um, so this 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 tribe, uh, they were they were a satanic tribe, uh, and what happened was their one of their daughters had fallen in love with one of the men in this uh, Muslim tribe. And so she left that tribe, like she ran away from them and married this man in this village that was Muslim. And so the satanic tribe came over uh, to the town and killed uh, the men of the family and beheaded them and piled their bodies in the middle of the town. Oh, square. shit. Yeah. And, and left a DVD tape to one of the uh, light poles in the town. Uh, it was like a, one of those wooden light poles. And it was taped to it, and it and it was the video of them beheading the men in the night. Oh wow! Yeah. So, um, yeah. So that you know, that was something that that always kind of stuck with me throughout. You know, like I said, towards the end of the tour, you know, having seen that, having experienced you know Ritzberg's death, um, and seeing you know the the state that he came in uh, in whenever you know I was at the hospital, you know, watching them roll him in and watching the OR from the hallway because the doors would just swing wide open. I was like, man, I'm tired. 
I'm, you know, this is my second tour, but I'm, you know, my first tour, I didn't see a whole lot of death. You know, we had, we had some, some mortars and stuff, but nobody died. Nobody, you know, the worst thing that happened was some guys ran over a cluster bomb from the desert storm and, you know, rung their bells, but they didn't get hurt other than, you know, some, maybe some TBI, but they weren't physically injured um, on the outside. Um, obviously TBI is a physical injury. But, yeah. But um, anyway, the, uh, I decided I didn't want to fight wars anymore. Um, I wanted to be a police officer as a civilian. I wanted to help people. I didn't want to, you know, live, you know, going from deployment to deployment and fighting the, you know, wars like that. So I decided to get out and, uh, I ended up becoming a cop in California for the army. My, my wife at the time, when I got out of the army, this is my first wife, she joined the air force and, uh, uh, we were stationed in Monterey, California. So and she made I, the right move. <laughs> right yeah and uh she uh she joined the air force and we were stationed in monterey california for a couple of years and i joined the presidio of monterey police department which is a army police department but it's all civilians and it's you know you have part of your property is the presidio of monterey which is closed property that's where all the students go where they do like their, you know different training and what it's a training environment and then um the other part which is what used to be fort ord out mm -hmm. in uh California, uh, but now it's called Ord Milcom, uh, Ord Military Community. And it's open property. So there's no gates. There's no uh, anything like that. It's just, you know, housing for the students and family and, and, and cadre that are at Presidio. Uh, there's a PX and a couple other things, but it's pretty much just open property. Anybody can travel through freely. So uh, and then on top of that, they had uh, part of the property had been leased out to CSUMB, uh, California State University of Monterey Bay. So we had a lot of stuff going on there, more than just MP stuff, like we were dealing with gangs, drugs, prostitution, college parties, all sorts of craziness uh, while we were there. And uh, one of the things that really should have woken me up or really should have gotten my attention is that one night, uh, my first wife and I were at a house party for one of, with one of her friends. And uh, they, they were both, her and her friend, uh, we're both Air Force and her friend's husband was a civilian like me. And so we were just doing shots. You know, we had tequila shots and you know, I'd, I'd already put down, I don't know, eight or nine beers at this point. And uh -huh. he wanted me to go shot for shot with you know, with tequila. And he so he lined up. Well, six shots. No, no, he's lined up six shots each. And uh, and he challenged me to go shot for shot. I remember taking two shots. Apparently, I took all six, but I only remember taking two. Because uh, so and then what I remember after that is bits and pieces. It's shoddy, you know, it's shoddy memory after that. I remember yeah. what, what's what's really funny is I, I keep on asking people that is like they get so blank out drunk. I was like, did you have fun? It was like, yeah, it was a fun time. How is it a fun time if you can't remember it, though? How do you know? <laughs> How do you know this? Because I'm, I'm curious. Yeah, it's like I, I had a fun you wake time, up the but... next day. You wake up the next day or maybe the day after. And you got, and you're having to be told via a third person point of view your escapades. And it's like, there's no way I did that, like at all. And then the story is corroborated by like four or five other people. And you're like, <laughs> or worse yet, video. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right. Video. Well, see, I was in, I was in before we had cell phones. <laughs> so, you know, it's one of those, thank God, because yeah. that stuff, I mean, with the exception of the occasional article 15 yeah um 
there there there's no record sure of the yes. uh of, of the debauchery yeah that was and that was my experience while i was on active duty i i got you know i, I did stupid stuff when i was on active duty everybody does but um yeah. <laughs> especially the enlisted um but uh <laughs> guilty yeah. but um at this point um this is about 2008 I think is when this happened. I, you know, I'd gotten out of the army, met up with her in California at this house party. And so I did the shot for shot. I remember taking two and then apparently I took all six. And then what I remember was actually being carried like by, you know, two people under my each arm and like I'm being drugged, you know, as I'm screaming out to my wife's car and I'm screaming Ritzberg's name. And I'm screaming, it should have been me. It shouldn't have been him. He shouldn't have died. You know, he's he's a better better person than I am. And, and I, you know, he he was a very genuinely good, you know, person. Um, his his soldiering instinct was what we had to develop because he was such a empathetic and sympathetic person. We had to kind of train him to be a little more aggressive than what he naturally was. And well, so, sometimes that's the best kind of soldier to have, though. <clears throat> Yeah. Yeah. You know, but he, I mean, it, it goes with that mindset of, you know, break them down and rebuild them kind of a thing. And he's got this new skill set that, that he had, you know. Yeah. So, but yeah, I, I that thought just jumped into my head. Sorry. Yeah, I didn't no, mean to interrupt you. No, it's, you're good. You're good. Absolutely. I mean, most of us, uh, a lot of us, you know, we get that change whenever we go to basic training. Like we get that breakdown and build up into that killer instinct when we go to basic training. Somehow, he was able to maintain that, you know, part of him, even through basic training. And, um, but like I said, during the FTX and stuff like that, he started to come, come, you know, into his own. Um, but so I was screaming about, you know, Ritzburg and how it should have been me and it shouldn't have been him and all that. And I remember being put in the car and just screaming into the window, like, you know, she's driving and I'm, the window is right here and I'm just screaming, you know, to cre all of creation, like the window is up, but I'm screaming, like I'm screaming out into all creation that it should have been me. And uh, we get home. bleeding after that. What's that? Was there ear ble uh, ears bleeding after that? I can just, fuck, I can just, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I, I don't think so, but uh there's well, a lot see, the, the thing about it the thing about it is dave is that like when you get that hammered that 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 pissed right the volume control in our heads goes a little sideways yeah i i i, I gather that <clears throat> you know but i know on to several occasions, depending on what I'd been drinking, I'm either just completely chilled out or I get mad as a hornet and I just, I want to fight the world, you know, and, and it's for, and it's for dumb reasons, you know, and it's like, you, you look at everything that you think that should have gone right as being your fault. Mm -hmm. And I, I think... I think that that's where, like, I, I don't know if you would call it an empathetic streak or whatever, but I think that, you know, because, like, we put, we, like, I don't know, we inject ourselves into that other person's role. And. Or, or based I think, situation. Yeah, you know, and I think, you know, like, you know, they say alcohol removes your inhibitions. 
I think part of that inhibition is is letting that wall down that we put mm -hmm. up as it removes as that that was put in place. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and it alcohol is nothing more than a skeleton key for the closet that we keep our demons in. So yeah. I like I that. It. And that's that's solid. Yeah, that's actually a very apt description uh of, of what it was doing for me. And uh I get home and we, you know, I stumble find somehow I stumble my way in because you know the, the my wife at the time she wouldn't have been able to carry me. So I found my way into the house and um, I, from what I can remember, I think I've you know was bouncing off the walls as I was moving down the hallway and got into bed, uh, immediately passed out just to wake up. I don't know how much how soon after that, but I mean I'm going exorcist all over the room, <laughs> just spewing everything that I had had that day everywhere, and then just laying back down in my own vomit, you know, not even thinking about it, not even caring, just laying back. Yeah. It's just all over me. It's all over yeah. the bed, you know. The wife at the time, she went and got towels, apparently. She told me about this later, and she cleaned it up as best she could, but there was only so much she could do with me, you know, being dead weight. She couldn't do a whole lot. And so the next morning, she told me about what happened, and apparently, this is, why, this is how I know I completed all six shots, because she told me I completed all six shots. <clears throat> and she said, after the sixth shot, I walked over to, the, to their kitchen table, sat down, and just stared off, you know, into the distance like just that thousand yard stare, just not engaging with anybody, not talking with anybody, just staring. And then I just started crying and then started yelling. And that's when they decided it was time for me to go. So that should have been my first clue <laughs> that I was dealing with something. <laughs> but I would look at the, the 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 stuff that I saw, right? And And it was, you know, Ritzburg and then those bodies and stuff like that. And I was, I would compare myself, I would compare my trauma to the other trauma that I knew other people had gone through, people who had, you know, suffered injury, people who had been, you know, amputated or, you know, their buddy had died in their arms, you know, all these different things, you know, that, that people in my unit and other units that I had heard. And I was like, how, how can I possibly, how can I possibly not deal with this? How can I possibly go and get help? And not be, you know, those guys that that are just faking the funk in the VA system, you know, because they're, you know, we know those guys in the VA that that are, you know, they're they're lying through their teeth just to get disability ratings, just so they can get free money from the government. And there's lots of them that do it. Um, I used to, I mean, later, you know, kind of further on down the story, but I was a police officer for the VA. I I would hear them all the time giving each other, telling each other in you know the cafes and in the waiting areas, like how to game the system. They were teaching each other how to game the system so that they could get more uh, disability than what they actually, you know, did. So I didn't want to be that guy. And so I, uh, I refused to get help. I was just like, you know what, I'm just going to stop drinking, you know, clearly and and my time in service don't get to get along. So I'm just going to stop drinking. And I did for about six months. I would just quit cold turkey, never looked back at it, and then started drinking again, off and on. Um, was maintaining just fine for years uh, till we got to Georgia. She got stationed to Georgia. We moved to Georgia. A lot of stuff happened there. I started dealing with suicidal ideation during that, my time there in Georgia, but I would just stuff it down, just push it down. The closest I came to suicide in Georgia was there was a night, uh, I think she was working a night shift, and I was in the house by myself 
and I had my pistol and I was sitting on the edge of the bed with the pistol locked and loaded and I was just staring at the pistol um like I could just end all this now I didn't uh, for whatever reason I think I just got tired uh, you know I just felt exhausted so I decided to put the gun away and go to sleep and you know looking back I think that was God <laughs> making me fall asleep <laughs> but um but I did I, I fell asleep and then when I woke up the next morning I was I'd, I was able to stuff all those emotions back down well, things happened with her and and I. Um, there was infidelity on both sides, and so we ended up splitting. I ended up coming back to Texas to DFW. I, you know, I, I was born I was born in McAllen, Texas, and raised in Arlington. So I came back to Arlington with my kids. Uh, her plan was that she was going to get out of the Air Force, and her boyfriend and her were going to come back to Texas, and you know, we we're all going to just we we're going to do the divorce, and everything was going to be fine. Um, well, I ended up. Uh, while I was here, you know, you know, I ended up meeting another woman that started dating her and everything was going great, man. I mean, I had a great career. I had become, you know, I'd, I'd start when I transferred from California to Georgia, I had become a police officer for the VA there. I ended up getting promoted to sergeant. I was an instructor. And then when I transferred to Dallas, I had to take a demotion back to patrol. But within like a couple of years, I was the training lieutenant. And then uh, shortly after that, some time after that, I became the, the a detective, uh, lieutenant detective for them. I did a lateral transfer out of training into investigations, and so all from all intents and purposes, every from every viewpoint on the outside, I had the American dream. Like I had the life. I had a like a I had a four bedroom house in Saginaw, Texas, that we were converting the office into a fifth bedroom. I had a motorcycle, we had two cars, we had tons of friends, we had, we had every, you know, all the latest, you know, and greatest stuff. You know, I had <clears throat> four kids from my first marriage, my second wife was pregnant, you know, everything was, you know, I, I, you know, looking as though this dude has a perfect life, like he has the American dream, beautiful house, beautiful wife, beautiful kids, uh, just a beautiful life. Uh, but this entire time, I'm not telling anybody I'm not talking to anybody about my stress, my struggles, because I'm trying to be stronger than that. I don't want to be weak. I don't want to be vulnerable and weak and say that this stuff that I experienced in Iraq affected me more than than I than I was willing to admit. And I kept telling myself and I kept comparing myself to, man, there's other people who have experienced so much worse, so much more. How can I say that this is something that I need to get help for when when it doesn't need it pales it pales in comparison to the trauma that you know guys that I work with now went yeah. through like well, I, they're guys well, I'm the, working with in the department. Well, the thing is, is uh, and I had a talk with the, uh, a person that came out on the podcast about this. Is we as individuals all have like demons, and we see that someone's having a harder time and our demons aren't that bad and we should just you know just walk off with suck it, it up it, buttercup it, yeah basically yeah yeah i <laughs> mean when it, I, I yeah go ahead david i'm sorry what it, what it comes around to is the fact of uh, the airplane okay airplane's best example you can possibly get because everybody as least uh, at one point in time has been on i pray or someone's talked about it when do you put on the mask? You put on the mask, your mask first, so you can help that other person. You have to help yourself out first 
So you can drag that person. Absolutely. Wherever you go. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you, 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 you bandage up yourself, then you take care of them unless they're like in a ser uh, serious condition. I mean, you figure out how to do it yeah. two at a yeah. time. You, but, you know, Brian, th th there was an ethos that, that I was taught when I was in the infantry. It's uh, the three M's men mission myself. And, uh, you know, I, I've always been the one that has tried to apply that in my regular life. And sometimes that just doesn't work, you know. And when my second marriage was was coming to an end, um, you know, just the, the little ghosts, the little demons, the the little, you know, regrets and, and the woulda, coulda, shouldas just started creeping in and the voices just kept getting louder and louder. And... You know, my uh, second wife at the time, she just she had ex explicitly expressed that she had no interest in trying to learn about or help with that kind of a thing. That didn't help. So, you know, I mean, I came home one day and from work and I went in my closet where I kept my gun safe and I chambered one round in my pistol and I actually had the barrel up to my head. And, you know, I hear this voice going, you know you're not supposed to be here. And then I had this thought, this image coming through my head of my boys walking in, finding me. And I took the gun away from my head. I dropped the magazine. I cleared the chamber. I just set it down on the ground and I just sat there and cried. And uh, she ultimately left. And, you know, it, I eventually through my the church that I was going to at the time got uh, hooked up with a guy who was an army chaplain and then come to find out he was actually a chaplain for the same brigade that I was in. Wow. So we spoke the same language and uh, you know and, and he gave me a piece of advice. He gave me actually like homework assignment and I, I tell this to guys all the time. Uh, he, he told me to personify my demons, you know, give them a name and then write a breakup letter to it. Hmm. And so, you know, I was like, okay, you know, I can do that. So I sat down with like a very earnest approach and I named it initially after my first wife. And I was like, no, because I start, I get about a paragraph into it and I'm like, no, it, this isn't helping because all I'm doing is just screaming at her, you know, kind of a thing. So I, I deleted everything. And then um, in the, probably one of my most unoriginal moments, I'm for whatever reason, I'm listening to music while I'm trying to do this. And uh, that Breaking Benjamin song, Dear Agony, came on. And so I was like, oh, crap. So I just named it Agony. You know, and it, the letter started out, Dear Agony. And 1,300 words later, man, I, I just kind of felt drained. And I, I read that letter back to myself. And boy, you want to talk about humbling. Mm -hmm. um, it put me in a position where it forced me to take ownership for my actions. And yeah, while well, you, you've got these these demons that are they're kind of telling you you know that you're not good enough or that you don't need to be here that everybody would be better off without you 
um, you were the one that ultimately made that conscious, you know, decision to go down that road. And once I was able to take ownership for those actions, take ownerships for the, you know, ownership for those thoughts, it, it was really, for lack of a better term, it was very empowering and it was very cathartic. And to me, I look back on that day and I look back on that letter and that was really a turning point for me. You know, I went from, again, like you said, really God kind of intervening at the very right time. I mean, I'm standing literally on the edge and I mean, my finger literally was on the trigger and he pulled me back and, you know, he just, he gave me this kind of like, it's a wonderful life moment. You know, where I, I, I was able to see what the world would have looked like <clears throat> without me in it. And I found myself really kind of looking at it like, here I am, a guy that claims to never want to quit, never want to back down from a fight, willing to take that step that's not only going to remove myself from the fight, but it's going to put my boys at a very serious disadvantage. <clears throat> and um, you know so I, I look back on that letter and, and actually probably about a year to a year and a half later no two years later <clears throat> I sat down and wrote a, a, a letter <clears throat> to my demons again and not not necessarily in the breakup format but more of a hey I'm just checking in to show you how I'm doing right and, you know, so, I mean, when I hear about, you know, brothers and sisters that have contemplated that or are taking steps to go down that road, you know, it, it's, it's become very much a, a passion project for me. And I know it's become one for David as well. And, you know, so, I mean, when I was still living up there in Wichita Falls, I got involved with my American Legion post and uh, by a, a very, very outstanding individual, very good friend of mine uh, named Michael Kurtz, um, started a rucking and he was Air Force. So he's like, and I don't do that walking shit, you know? <laughs> and, and I mean, and now he's, you can see the rain blowing in starting to fall out here that's cool but um he's he's kind of taken off with it i mean he started a, a like an actual ruck club up there they're associated with go ruck uh they're doing events all over town all the time they're doing wads and i'm just like bro i mean i've created a monster he's gotten his wife involved there's other guys from the post involved there's civilians getting involved and i'm just like Whoa, you know, and then I get down here. I moved to just south of Houston after I got married to my now wife. Um, we actually have uh, an organization down here called Bow 22. Yeah. And uh, here. yeah, it's like the guy that runs it literally lives right behind me. Yeah, we have a like Bow 22 can... here in, in uh, uh, Arlington or Fort Worth, I think. 
Yeah. So, was that I mean, the guy we met down in uh Betfest? Or is that the a guy Holy Damn different that was in the truck with? Oh. I I don't know because I I know I haven't done anything with Battle 22. I just know they're here because some of my friends have used them. Oh, okay. Yeah, so I mean it, it's dude, it's the <clears throat> hearing you go through these progressions and finally getting to the point where you're just like I'm not even there yet because the <laughs> yeah, yeah. there's still I mean, much more to go <laughs> you know, I'm sitting here going holy crap you know it's like because you know it, it's you, you, you hear this in, in like marriage counseling or whatever that while what you may be going through might feel unique, you're not the first person to go through it kind of a deal. And then that's all I'm hearing in my head right now. And and I'm just like sitting there going, okay, all right. I, I'm, I'm, I'm broken, but I'm not nearly as damaged as I think I was, you know? So, you know, cause it's like, I'm not the only one that goes, goes through it. And so, I mean, I'm done going, getting off into the weeds now. I'm, I'm yielding the floor back to you, sir. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> Appreciate that. I mean, it, it it definitely you know it's good to to share stuff like that with each other, especially amongst veterans, um, especially veterans who've who've whatever the trauma, whether it's combat trauma or military sexual trauma or whatever trauma that they've experienced, uh, being able to just openly share it. Um, it. Ultimately, that's that's one of the most cathartic things that a veteran can do. But uh, so at this time. You know, again, we're looking at my life and my life is just picture perfect, right? My, you know, from the outside looking in. But during this whole thing, I'm battling my first wife over the custody of my older four children. And, you know, it stresses, that's stressing me out. And I still haven't addressed any of my PTSD, any of my trauma, any of the things I'm dealing with. So I'm getting to a point, you know, I, I'm again, I mean, Nobody at work even realized. Nobody at the at the you know in my department even knew. Uh, but I would um, shut my door with my gun on my hip, you know, and I would lock the office, lock my office, and I would sleep, you know, for hours because I just couldn't. I didn't have energy. I didn't have, you know, the strength to just keep my eyes open. Um, and so I did that a few times and then I realized I was like, man, this is, this is stupid. This is dangerous. I'm phoning in my work. Like I'm, I'm still doing a good job, but I don't care as you know, like I should about, you know, the work that I'm doing, I'm investigating crimes. You know, we're, we're investigating, you know, vehicle thefts. We're investigating catalytic converter thefts. We're investigating domestic violence, prostitution, you know, drugs. I mean, we're investigating a lot of different things. A lot of things happen on VA property that people don't um really think should would happen on hospital grounds but take because because the the dallas campus of the va is 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 in oak cliff it's not in the nice side of oak cliff either it's in the it's in the more rough neighborhood of oak cliff dallas yeah and, so it's, it's is it the one that's over there off of harry hines it's off of lancaster okay yeah i know which i know what facility you're talking about yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so it's, it's, um, it's the main hospital and that's where I did most of my work. But I mean, as a detective, I had all the VA property, all the VA owned property was under my jurisdiction with my criminal investigator. He was the, he was my supervisor. Um, but, you know, 
we're, we're investigating all these things, but I'm finding myself less and less, you know, invested in the job. I mean, this is a job that I've wanted since I was in second grade. Like I wanted to be a cop. I mean, when, when my teacher in second grade asked, you know, draw a picture of yourself, what you want to be when you grow up. I drew myself in police uniform next to a police car. I'd always, that was always my dream. And so, I mean, I have my dream job, but I'm not finding any fulfillment, any satisfaction in it. You're pretty much being compliant to the uh, job. It, yeah. I'm doing the bare minimum, and, you know, which, you know, for government work is, you know, that's excess. a lot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That, that's, you know, when it comes to government jobs, you know, if you can do that, if you can do what they ask you, you're doing a pretty dang good job. Uh, but I was used to doing more, right? I, I was never someone who just did the bare minimum. I always went the extra mile, always went, did the, did, tried to, tried to make every case the most important case, you know, every interview, the most important interview. And I wasn't doing that anymore. And, and then of course, on top of that, sleeping with a gun on my hip, I was like, man, I just, I can't be doing this. I, I'm not safe. I don't care. I need to, I need to, to, to resign. I need to retire. Because I'm not, I'm not. So I retired early uh, under uh, LEOSA, the Law Enforcement Officer Safety Act. So I don't get like a pension necessarily. But I still have my retirement, you know, uh, with them, but I can't touch it until I'm like 65 or whatever it is. But I'm I'm retired uh, detective from there now. Um, so when I, but what we did was my second wife at the time, uh, she, you know, she, I started telling her about what was going on at work a little bit. And she was like, well, why don't you just, you know, this is right around the time the pandemic started hitting pretty hard. She's like, well, why don't you just, you know, resign and you can be a stay at home dad. And she, she was making six figures at the time. So it wasn't like it was going to hurt us in the pocketbook. And it's like, you can take care of the kids, teach the kids because she was working from home. And she's like, we can just be a family at home and uh, you take care of the house and the kids and I'll, you know, do the work and, you know, we'll just have a great life. And you don't have to worry about, you know, chasing people or, you know investigating or anything like that and i was like well that sounds like a pretty good deal so that's what i did was i resigned and actually tried to become a mortgage loan processor with the same company that she was working for uh they had a program for veterans and college grads where they would teach you how to process loans um so real quick just to recap of the all the years that have gone between we're talking about 13 years where i've continuously uh -huh. struggled with self-worth with suicidal ideation i'm constantly battling these demons when i'm going to sleep i'm having nightmares i'm having uh night terrors we're to the point where she's having to wake me up in the middle of the night because i'm yelling and screaming and, and these these dreams these nightmares and night terrors that i'm having it's not even like anything specific that, that, that gets personified it's either i'm being chased by something or i'm chasing something trying to kill it and so but I'm I'm screaming in my sleep, but it's like, it's not coming out as like a full scream. It's like a whisper scream, you know, is what she described, kind of the way she described it. And, but she would have to wake me up just so that she could go to sleep because I kept waking her up. But again, it's all these things, the, the, the suicidal ideation, the, the self-worth issue, the, the praying to God to just take me and just kill me now, just you know, relieve me from all this pain. Um, and then these nightmares and night terrors that I'm, I'm struggling with. Um, so all should have been clues, <laughs> right? As a, as you a, didn't as, take those clues at all, right? Right. No, as, as, as good a detective as I was, which I was, I was pretty darn good. I could not uh, investigate myself. 
Uh, I was yeah, not, I was just about to say all all of that training just went right out the window. Yeah, yeah, and that's and I was just I was just too close to it, right? I'm you know, and that's that's a lot of what happens to us as veterans is that we're just too close to it to really see it for what it is, and so that's what was going on. And so while I was training up for this loan processing job, I was doing really well. I was like the head of my class, uh, just killing it with the with the you know how to understand the programs and you know all the different things that we we were doing. And then when they sent us out to start actually processing loans, like I was surpassing all my peers in processing loans. But again, I'm putting all this pressure on myself more than I probably should have to be as good as people who had been doing it for 10, 15 years. Like I'm trying to be, you know, within having done this for a year and I'm trying to meet match their numbers. And and I'm just breaking my breaking my back, you know, mentally trying to get this stuff done. To the point where I'm having, you know, uh, you know, emotional breaks, you know, where I'm just underneath my desk at home, just sobbing because uh, so I'm basically able... having regular panic attacks. Yeah, basically, yeah. And so, you know, every every weekend at this point, I'm I'm drinking probably a you know fifth of uh, vodka or a fifth of tequila or a fifth of whiskey uh, through the course of Friday night till Sunday evening when I'm going to bed. You know, I'm, I'm going through one, if not two, you know, handles of that stuff, but I kept it on the weekends. So I was like, I don't have a problem. I'm just partying with my friends. Um, and then, but with all these emotional breakdowns I was having, my my wife at the time took pity on me and she's like, you, you don't need to work at all. You can, you can just, just be a stay at home. She thought she, you know, thought that was going to help me is because then I won't have stress. I won't have. Yeah external stressors stressing me out and you know you know her her heart was a heart of compassion for me in that moment and just said look i can i can pay the bills and you can do what you need to do and just take care of the family and take care of the home and so that's what i did problem was i still hadn't addressed my demons i still hadn't addressed my ptsd and my trauma and so now whereas you know when i was working as a cop and then as a working as a loan processor during the day, I had things to occupy my mind, even though they were stressful, it kept me away from drinking because I needed to be sober minded to be able to handle these things. And so that was my motivation not to drink. Basically now, you didn't get any hobbies. Yeah, I, now, that, now, I, that That's one thing that cured me in a lot of my stuff is uh, the basic fact is I love creating and love doing hobbies and everything like that. Yeah. And that's that's another thing that actually helps you out a lot. I mean, yeah, it's, it's a replacement it's strategy. Rocking. Yeah, it's Johnny with his rocking. I mean, what what, what hobbies do you do now? Uh, well, now I I well I I do I work out a lot because uh, I want to be physically healthy because I look like trash when I was in the middle of my addiction. Oh, oh man, I was trying to grow my hair out and I look I look like a homeless person, uh, <laughs> even though I wasn't. But so I do a lot of working yeah. out and then I do, um, I'm working on stuff on uh, YouTube, um, create my own channel on YouTube. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Every, everything I ended up like, it's like, you got a challenge for me? Give it to me. I'm like, dude, you're at 11. I need you to take it to like, like a three. Yeah. Okay. And, uh, so, so that's something that I do right now, uh, to kind of occupy my time is I work on my YouTube channel and, uh, try to, you know, keep in that. And it's, it's it's going pretty well, you know, cause there's a lot of research involved in it. And so it keeps, you know, that that's pretty good as far as my day to day goes, but um, I'm also going to be uh, trying to get with Voc rehab to uh, see about getting um, 
some retraining. I haven't decided, like, it's, it's funny. At first I thought about going into IT and becoming a cybersecurity specialist, but recently I felt like it's been kind of, it's been a thought in my head and I'm not sure because I'm very wary about going into the ministry, but um, because of, you know, people in the ministry are held to a higher standard yeah. and I don't want to, I don't want to be, you know, like those guys you see that, that are, you know, leaders in the ministry and turn around and screw everything up. And then people, you know, fall away from the faith because of it. So I, I've always been told ever since I was a kid that I was going to be either an evangelist or a preacher, but I never wanted it because I didn't want to be held to that standard. I was like, I'm not, I can't meet that standard. There's no way. So, but recently <clears throat> that's been something that's been weighing on me. So I'm, I'm praying about it and I'm, you know, talking to people about it as to whether or not that's something that, that, that I'm being called to, or if that's just a, a distraction. So, but that's besides the point at the moment. Yeah. <laughs> the, I, uh, I you we're going to get off bases a lot. Yeah, no, you're good. But, um, so at the meanwhile, end, I've got, we, we've got, we've got a, uh, an uninvited guest here. Oh, that's all right. He's a cute little puppy, but, um, I, she um, is rotten. <laughs> all so right, I, go ahead, uh, yeah, you're good. So I, I ended up quitting that job and I became a stay-at-home dad. My demons were still there and I'm still, I'm struggling even more with suicidal ideation and sense of worthlessness. So I started self-medicating throughout the week with um, tequila because, you know, tequila has, is basically odorless. Um, I could cover up the smell on my breath with, you know, vaping or smoking or, you know, gum or whatever, because it wasn't, you know, too pungent. Uh, and so I was able to hide it pretty easily and I would hide the uh, handle. I would go out and buy a handle at a time and I would hide in the garage and I would take, you know, a shot or two every couple of hours. The handle. Uh, the big 750. Huge. Oh, okay, okay, okay. They literally okay. have a handle on them. Okay. Yeah. yeah I was yeah. like, what the, f what was he talking about? The, the, the jars, see, okay, the bottles see, that are so right, big. That's, 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 that, that's the, uh, the lightweight air force talking. No, that's just that's just I'm not that uh, I'm not I'm not up at that level of alcoholism. <laughs> but yeah, so um but it got to a point when I mean I got so to the point like so she caught me a couple of times uh drinking during the day and drinking during the week and being drunk um and would give me an ultimatum, you know, knock it off, whatever, this, that, and the other. And I ended up I would, you know, she kicked me out at one point and I started going to AA wasn't really jiving honestly with AA um I don't think I was in a place at that time to for it to really be effective plus I didn't really to me you know this higher power stuff just I again I you know I, I, I constantly felt the pull of God and I constantly felt his presence in my life but I just didn't want anything to do with it uh I would try from time to time to read the Bible to my kids and you know and I had a bunch of theology a bunch of knowledge still do um, you know, I can, I can debate till the cows come home on lots of different issues, but I didn't want anything to do with it. I didn't care. You know, I was just, you know, it was more of an intellectual exercise than a spiritual exercise for me. And, uh, so I kept, kept drinking. I go to a for a while. Um, now this is where I think she didn't help me where she should have. Um, I, her, I believe her heart was in the right place, but she just didn't know how, how much damage how much damage this actually did uh but she would say i don't really think you're an alcoholic i think you just need to learn how to how to how to control it 
because she liked to go and drink and you know go to yeah. karaoke bars and stuff and she didn't want to be the only one drinking if she was going to drink she wanted me to drink with her so she could just share that that celebratory time not realizing that I no longer had the capability of maintaining just a celebratory time I, I that that part of me it was gone at that point um so one time uh, I'd stopped going to AA because you know there was a lot of stress at home with her having to deal with the kids while I was in my meetings I was going to meetings like two or three times a week and so she was dealing with a lot of that and then I ended up stopped going we ended up at uh, a restaurant one night um Papado's uh, over in the Saginaw area and we're standing there waiting for food to go and again middle of the pandemic so we're just kind of you know it was not middle of the pandemic it's towards closer towards the end where you know things were kind of loosening up because we were inside the restaurant and um we're picking up the food but where we pick the food up is right there in the bar area and i'm struggling because i haven't been to aa in a while and but i but i had stopped drinking at this point period but she looked at me and she goes well why don't we get a drink and you don't tell an alcohol, you don't ask an alcoholic you know, why don't we get a drink while we're standing in the middle of a bar because <laughs> he's gonna say it's like okay. the it's like hey what what are you gonna drink a holic that's what I'm gonna drink <laughs> yeah so so I just you know I okay and she's like as long as you drink with me and as long as you only drink with me and you don't drink without me then I think you know you can do this it makes perfect but, sense yeah yeah I was like absolutely you know in my mind I'm like yeah. I mean, and I fully intended only to drink with her, but that's like having a spotter in the gym. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so it's just, you know, and that was, I, I didn't intend to get back into drinking behind her back, but I did. I ended up, we ended up selling the house in Saginaw during the height of, uh, you know, profitability. Mm -hmm. And uh, we made, I don't know, like 90 grand off of our house on top of paying back the mortgage. And so we ended up moving over into Crowley to an apartment complex in Crowley. Still stay at home, dad. Uh, things seem from her perspective and from everybody else's perspective seem to be going well. She, you know, she had a relationship with her half brother now where, cause they, they had been estranged since you know birth. They hadn't met each other. They met each other in Saginaw uh, through uh, online community, like on Facebook and stuff. So he moved into the apartment complex, you know, into an apartment down, you know, the floor below us. <clears throat> so everything's going great you know we're looking into buying another house uh, a nicer house there's an older house but a nicer house in, in Fort Worth and uh, using the money that we had made from the sale in Saginaw and she goes out mind you I've been I've been kicked out at, I think at least a couple of times at this point and you know got to this point where I'm not going to AA I'm not I still haven't addressed my demons I still haven't addressed my PTSD but where she's allowing me to drink and this particular apartment complex, they one of their show apartments, they left unlocked during the day to show the apartment, you know, without having to use a key. Well, inside that fridge, they had waters, sodas, and beers. You know, and they would show, they would give, they would offer beer to people whenever they were doing the the apartment uh, tours. I knew it was left unlocked, and uh, so this particular day, she had taken. Uh, her her daughter and my daughter out for a girls' day, and me and my boys were going to be in the house watching movies, just having a guys' day in the apartment. Mm -hmm. Well, I we we had had some some alcohol left over from the night before, where we had been drinking with her brother on the on the patio, and uh, of our apartment. And so when I woke up that morning, we already had the plan that she was going to go do that. I woke up before her. I immediately went over to the fridge, had this huge 
tumbler and I just poured, you know, all the beers that I could into that tumbler and I just had it hit it behind, you know, next to the couch. And, you know, me and my sons are watching, you know, a movie. Uh, I think it was, um, what's that Chris Pat, Chris Pratt movie, the war future war. No, yeah. Yeah. The tomorrow war. Yeah. Tomorrow, tomorrow, war. yeah. tomorrow war. Yeah. So we're watching the tomorrow war and then she gets up, gets the girls together and they go out to do the girl day. And I'm, I'm, at this point, with that tumbler, I've probably had about four beers, equivalent to four beers at that by the time she leaves. And she leaves, and I go and refill from the fridge what we had left. And so I'm drinking that, and I finish all that up. And I was like, well, I'm too drunk to drive. I'm not going to do that. But the apartment downstairs I know has alcohol, and it's open. Oh, and it's free. Yeah. So I go, I, I tell the boys, I'll be right back. I go downstairs to that apartment, go in there, and I grab. I don't know, seven or eight beers out of the fridge, take them upstairs to my apartment and I fill the cup up and uh, I'm drinking, you know, there's a few in the fridge and I'm, and I'm drinking it. And I'm about halfway through that tumbler when she, I lost all track of time at this point because <laughs> I'm, I'm pretty drunk at this point because I hadn't been drinking for a while. And so, you know, my tolerance was low. And so I'm pretty drunk at this point. And she comes home and I'm like passed out on the couch the and the tomorrow war is blaring <laughs> you know yeah. loud as hell she can hear it out in the hallway and she comes in she goes why is the movie so loud and i'm like what? what you know coming out of my slumber she goes in the hallway now and i get up and i stumble out in the hallway and she goes are you drunk and i go yep and she goes get out get out and i i thought i was like f you i'm not leaving and I turn around and walk in and I go and I lay down on the bed in our bedroom and pass out. Uh, from the time that I passed out to the time that my her and my mom were waking me up, I have no idea how long it was, but she had called my parents. My dad took the kids uh, to their house, all the kids to their house. And my mom and her were trying to get me out of the bed and get me into the car. You know, she was kicking me out again. And um i was refusing to leave and my mom's pleading with me like this this isn't going to get better unless you get help this isn't going to you know you know you're going to have to leave for a time she's not saying she wants to divorce you but you need to get out of the house we need to get you help and i was like you know finally they talked me into it and her and my mom again you know with their help because i couldn't get down the stairs on my own they were helping me down the stairs uh we get into uh the car and as we're driving away, my mom realizes she doesn't have any of my IDs, uh, which, you know, we would need for hospital and care and all that stuff. So she turns around and goes back and calls Jonna, my second wife at the time, calls her and says, hey, he needs his IDs. So she gives the IDs to her brother. Her brother comes down to give the IDs to my mom. And as soon as the vehicle stops, I don't know. I mean, I, I already had was dealing with the, you know, in my drunken stupor of thoughts of my life is over. She's going to divorce me, you know, another divorce, my second divorce. This is going to be, you know, everything's done. I have no prospects for career. I, you know, I had a career that was, you know, a great career and I gave it all away and I, you know, I don't have nothing left. You know, I'm, I'm causing my family stress, you know, hurting my mom, hurting my dad, I'm hurting my wife, hurting my children because now, you know, you know, I could potentially be a liability to my children because I've been drinking while I'm supposed to be watching them and they could have gotten hurt, especially my youngest at the time, you know, barely like a year old and, you know, I'm drunk. <laughs> and so I'm like, it would just be better. I, I would stop hurting if I did this and they wouldn't have to deal with my crap. 
right? So there's this there's there's this misnomer misconception uh, from people who have never dealt with suicidal ideation and and the attempt or or attempting suicide for that matter. Um, people who have never dealt with it see it as this selfish act. They see it as this act of utter and unadulterated selfishness that you're not thinking of anybody else when you're going through this. And I can speak from my experience that that is not absolutely not the case. The predominant thought in my mind, more so than how it would benefit me, was that I would not be a burden to them anymore. I yeah. would not screw my kids up any more than I already have. I would not hurt my, 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 I would, I, they, I wouldn't be able to hurt my parents continuously. Yeah, they would be hurt for a moment, but it wouldn't be a continuous kind of pain for the rest of their lives. You know, they'd get over it. That's the thought that was in my head. And, and then you're, John, in a situation like that, you're taught, you're, you're, you're basically thinking of others instead of yourself. And if you take yourself out of the picture, they'll be better off. Yeah. They'll be able to find a new person. Like she'll be able to find a new person who's better for her. Yeah. The kids will be able to have a stepdad who's better for them or whatever. And, and, and so that was my main crux of my, of, of actually um, convincing myself to yeah, do it and, then, and it was in the secondary to that was in addition like a bonus a bonus to it i get to stop hurting too so win-win for everybody is the way i looked at it i wasn't looking at it as just a selfish thing and so it's to me it wasn't a selfish act it was it was it was i'm i'm the cause of all these problems if i eliminate my me the cause of all these problems go away yeah but you're, but what people don't realize that committing suicide is it, it literally is it's still a suicide bomb yeah because it still does yeah absolutely. you might kill you might kill somebody with that suicide bomb like that's really close to you but it still affects other people you could have a person that you haven't met in a while they hear about it and something happens. This is like a, a piece of shrapnel that's uh, in absolutely. Actually, absolutely. Uh, yeah. The, be the best, the best thing that I'd ever heard that sums up what suicide does is that it doesn't stop the pain; it transfers it to people that you left behind. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. But in that moment, right? In that moment, that you know, obviously, I'm not thinking logically, right? Because <laughs> logic has gone has long since left the building at that point. I am not in a, you know, stable mental state, right? So, you know, argumentation back and forth as to what's plus and what's minus cons and pros and all that stuff isn't happening. All I see is I'm hurting everybody. I'm hurting myself. I may as well just end it. And so I get out of the vehicle. I jump as, as, it's, as it comes to a stop. I leap out of the, out of the door, open the door, swing it wide open, run and run down this field where I knew there was a creek. And I'm, this tells you how drunk I was. I was so drunk, I thought I could drown myself. Um, and so I went down to, yeah, I went down to the creek and I I went face first. I didn't even try to catch myself. I like that kid that I threw into the street. I went straight face first, put my arms behind me and went right into the creek. And I and I tried to breathe in the water. Like I was trying to breathe in the water. That just reminds uh, me of that whole uh part in uh Robin Hood and Men in Tights. <laughs> Where Big John's in the in the creek, he's like, "Save me, save me!" Uh, <laughs> Stand up. And it, I, honestly, up. it's about it's about it's about that deep. <laughs> it's about that deep. the creek had not been rained in in a while, so it was about oh, that. Oh wow! Deep. Yeah. Okay. And, and but I, I, my face is in the water, in the mud, and I'm trying to breathe it in. And my brother-in-law had chased me down the creek, 
And as I'm trying to breathe the water in, he reaches in and he grabs me, grabs me and pulls me out. And I'm so I'm trying to fight him. Uh, now, I had taught him, uh, I think, a few months earlier or maybe a year or so earlier. I'm not sure. But I had taught him some moves because uh, I was an instructor for my department when it comes to ground defense recovery, which is basically MMA for police. Instead of finishing the fight with breaking arms and killing people, it's subdue and restrain jujitsu and grappling and all yeah, that. it's grappling it's grappling without the the final move basically and so i was an instructor for that you know where whereas in mma you know they're they're all about you know if it's a street fight you know kill kill you know stuff like that that, that a lot of the moves the, are, they're still trained to it's to different my training they're still uh trained to subdue my right. well, on the hand, I'm not in, in the, you know when we when I was first introduced to MMA was when I was in the army and we were taught combatives and so yeah. it was kill 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 um and then when I became a police officer I had to you know change my tactics when we were learning GDR ground defense recovery is what we called it uh but it was based on the Gracie uh jujitsu for law enforcement it was based okay. on their program uh and so it wasn't about kill it was about restraint and subdue or subdue and restrain so I had taught him some things, um, which turned around <clears throat> in this moment, he actually used those things that I taught him to protect himself while I was trying to fight him. <laughs> of course, I'm drunk, so I don't really have a whole lot of, you know, I have my knowledge, but I'm, you know, not able to control my, my faculties as yeah, well as I normally would be. So he was able to, he was able to, to, to fight me. Um, but we fought for a good 20 minutes. And anybody who's done MMA knows that fighting for 20, you know, fighting for two to three minutes is tough. And he, I, so I fully looking back on it, I fully believe because he was, he, he was drunk too. He'd, he'd already had a six pack by the time I were fighting, you know, at the, uh, on the, in this field. So I fully believe that he was given supernatural strength. I believe the angel, God sent the angels down and gave him the strength to be able to endure because I was trying to hurt him. You know, I was head, trying to headbutt him. I was trying to punch him. I was trying to gouge eyes. I was trying to do anything I could to get free of him so I could get back to the creek. But he was able to maintain. He got a little hurt, but for all, all intents and purposes, it was bumps and bruises uh, that otherwise, you know, he probably should have, you know, experienced more than yeah. that. Um, but like I said, I fully believe that he was given supernatural strength to subdue me because it took, he did that by himself for 20 minutes. It took two police officers and three paramedics to get me subdued, handcuffed, and on a backboard. Jesus. And he did that by himself for 20 minutes. And he was not in the, he was not in the best shape of his life at all by any means. So that's why I fully believe that he he God definitely gave him an uh, extra, you know, portion of strength that day. Yeah. And um, but they got me on the backboard, they got me up into the ambulance. <laughs> that's where I lost my iWa my Apple Watch. That's why I have a Fitbit it's in my it's in the charger, but I have a Fitbit now because I can't <laughs> afford to replace my Apple Watch. But uh, <laughs> which is funny, but um, first world problems, first world, yeah, problems. first world problems, right? So I ended up going to uh, uh, JPS in Fort Worth, and I ended up this. So it's 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 ironic, I guess, because I had sent many many people to the psych ward. You know, being a police officer in California and Georgia, and then in Dallas, you know, I came across a lot of people with mental health issues, and I'd done a lot of uh, you know involuntary you know committals. Um, here I am having 18 plus years of law enforcement ex experience and I'm being involuntarily committed, you know, and 
um the, the the police officers did take pity on me they did they, they decided not to charge me once they found out that i was a veteran in crisis because they were veterans too and so they 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 you know took pity on me and decided just to involuntarily commit me and, and defer the charges so that was a blessing in and of itself but i'm sitting there in jps in the 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 basically the psych triage right you know so bunch of people all with mental health issues in one big room <laughs> is what it is and so i find myself uh uh you know i'm you know kind of a, just in a chair just kind of off by myself trying to just not get involved with anybody at that point and a recliner comes open i snake it get in there i claim it and so i just i never leave that chair for like three days you know unless i'm going to the restroom but then i get moved over to the actual psych ward at trinity springs for for a five-day evaluation uh and while i'm there you know i'm just like lost like my head is not in it i don't know what's going on i'm just how did i get here that sort of thing and i remember sitting in the day room uh one day where something's on tv and i'm just kind of sitting there blankly staring at the tv and this gentleman comes over his name is michael and he goes hey i just wanted to come over and introduce myself he's one of the patients i want to come over and introduce myself and he said my name is michael like, hey man i'm brian he's like uh you how you doing and so we just started talking and i told him a little bit of my story and he told me a little bit of his story and he asked me he's like have you ever heard of because uh, I told him about how AA wasn't working for me. And so he's like, have you ever heard of Celebrate Recovery? Like Celebrate, yeah, I've seen signs. I don't know what it is, but I've seen signs around town for it. He goes, well, it's it's a Christ-centered 12-step recovery group. Um, and I was like, oh, that's neat. And that's about it. You know, <laughs> that's neat. You know, that's cool. It's a, you know, a novel concept to make it a, you know, a 12-step group about, you know, where it's God and Jesus. That's cool. Didn't think much of it at the time uh just thought it was just a passing conversation um <clears throat> after i was there for a few days i ended up getting discharged without you know uh seeing the judge the the uh staff and the doctors thought i was well enough to to that it was just a, a momentary thing so they sent me home and i was working with um a lady named uh tina tina marie uh from american addiction centers uh, at the time, and she was able to help me work uh, through the veterans program that they have at American Addiction Centers to get the VA to send me to uh, Greenhouse in Grand Prairie, Texas for rehab. Okay. Uh, and the reason I was able to do that is my particular situation, having been a cop for the VA, uh, we were able to make the case that I needed to go to community care instead of the VA's program, because chances are uh, the people that I would come in contact with in the program were people that I've either arrested or sent <laughs> to the psych ward at some point or another. And so it might be a distraction for them. It definitely would be a distraction for me because I'd be watching my back the whole time. It's like a cop going to prison. <laughs> you know, the... I, I, I work in prison. It's 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 OK. <laughs> sure. Yeah. So so they they understood that and they they agreed that it would be best for both the veterans who were in the, in the program there and best for me to not have to worry about that. And, and Greenhouse had a veteran program. But um, and so I ended up going there. And it's funny, I went there on a Saturday. I think it was like one or two in the afternoon. Um, get I get uh, in processed and sent to my room and I spent the rest of the day just in my room. I would go get food. And then come back to my room and eat in my room, even though we weren't technically supposed to. <laughs> they didn't, but they, I was in the uh, detox 
uh, wing, so they didn't really mess with you too much as far as the rules go. They just kind of let you do your thing, mm-hmm. you know, in the detox wing, just so that they, you can get that stuff out of your system. And so the next day is Sunday, and the very first person, like the very the therapist, you know, to kind of do my orientation, who came in, just happened to also be, and I say happened with quotation marks, just happened to also be the guy who ran the Christian small group for greenhouse uh, rehab. And so we started talking, uh, you know, and I started, you know, and he asked me if I, you know, was a believer. And I said, yes. And then, you know, I told him I accepted Jesus as, you know, when I was seven, but, but my entire life, my entire adult life, I was basically living like I wasn't a Christian, you know, went through all the details of all the sin and sexual immorality and, you know, anger and violence and alcoholism and all the different things I had done. And uh, he said, well, you know, why, why did you leave the church? And I asked, I, I told him, I said, well, because it's full of, you know, two-faced individuals that just, you know, say one thing to your face and talk crap behind your back. And they themselves are out there on, during the week, just doing whatever they want, just so they can come in on Sunday, so they can take a shower. And then they go back out and get dirty again. I mean, I, I don't want to be a part of that. And he's like, well, he actually, and this is something that really got me thinking. He's like, well, if you see that, and you're on the outside and you if you saw that when you were in how does the church get better if people who see what's going on aren't in the church to make it better or to call it out when they see it or to do better and to live better and by example and that really kind of hit me in the gut it's like i'm being just as much of a hypocrite as the people yeah. i was angry with i'm being i'm being the exact same person i'm just not going to church to do it but I'm still the same hypocrite. Yeah. And, uh, and so that really got me thinking. And then throughout, I was there, I was there at the inpatient facility for 60 days. And so I, I slowly, but surely, I wasn't sure if I really wanted to come, come back into my faith and, you know, come back into being a practicing Christian, but I, I really felt, you know, my, my, the doctor I ended up having for the veterans group that she was in charge, her name is MJ. Um, uh, Marion Jackson is, you know, she's, she was our therapist for the vet specifically for the veterans and first responders. It's a mixture of veterans and first responders that they have uh, for, for that group. And um, having been both, I was a perfect candidate. (laughs) So um, she, uh, she also was a very strong Christian, but she would, she would tailor her therapy based on your view. Like if you were not a believer, then it was all, you know, psychology, but if you were a believer and you wanted that to be put into your therapy, then she would be more than happy to incorporate that. So I started talking to her about God, about faith. And so she started praying with me and we started going over scripture and different things, uh, as well as she wanted me to do this therapy called EMDR, which for those who are unfamiliar, EMDR stands for, uh, uh, what was it? EMDR, eye movement, desensitization, desensitization, and rehabilitation. So eye okay. movement, desen- yeah, eye movement, desensitization, rehabilitation. And what it is, is it's almost like a meditative therapy. Okay. okay. So there's different ways, but you're sitting there, there's different different ways to do it. You can do it through uh, sound and, and pictures on a screen, you know, in a reclined and relaxed environment um, where, you know, you're kind of being walked through some of these memories, these traumatic memories. And you're remembering details because it's in a calm environment and you're safe and in control, um, you know, because the person that's with you has built that trust with you that now you can revisit these memories 
and you can experience the emotions and know that you're safe to experience those things. And so, okay. That, that explains how DMT works then. Yeah. Kind of like that. Uh, but Cause a lot of people that, yeah. The <laughs> yeah. Yeah. A lot of, a lot of people, a lot of people that I know, they, they get over their addiction and uh, PTSD through uh, DMT or hallucinogenics right. and yeah. that, that, it's that's thing, and it actually works. That's yeah. what no, no, the, no. the great, great thing about it. But what you're, the, you're actually describing is everything, but without the drugs. Right. Without and that, there's actually, there's actually research being done into psychotropics as a, as a medicine for PTSD of all types, not just military and first responder, but all PTSD types. Yeah. Cause uh, what a lot of people don't right know now. is what a lot of people don't know is that PTSD isn't that the mo most people associate with military uh, it's shell shock and it's been named uh, yeah. uh, but the most people that actually have ptsd uh vehicle accidents vehicle accidents um child abuse rape yeah, yeah. Uh, your uh 911 dispatchers it's you know it's oh, yeah. funny a lot of people don't realize this but 911 dispatchers have a lot of ptsd cuz you got to imagine and they, the people wouldn't think about that because these people are in a computer. They have a phone. They're not seeing. They're dis any. They think they're disassociated with that. Yeah, they're just. Yeah, they they feel the, the the general public would look at them and say, well, they're not part of the. They're they're separated from the incident. They're not seeing the bodies. They're not seeing the 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 carnage and all that stuff. But but the, but they don't realize. And the re the way I came to realize this was my my first wife before we, we got divorced. Um, she was in a career field where she would hear those things on the intel side. Uh, but she was safe stateside, but she would hear it over in country because uh, she was in the intel field. And so she would hear people getting blown up and getting hurt and stuff like that. And so she would have her own PTSD from that, not being able to do anything. And so the same thing with 911 dispatchers is that they see all these deaths or not see them, but they hear about, they hear these deaths, they hear these people dying and getting beaten and getting hurt. And they are experiencing PTSD because there's nothing they can do except talk. And then when the person doesn't make it or when the person, you know, continues to, to suffer, uh, they deal with that. So PTSD comes in all shapes and sizes in many different forms. You know, car accidents is, is definitely, you know, one of them um, and any number of other things. And so, but while I was in this treatment and uh, we were doing this EMDR, uh, I was able to revisit those traumatic memories and especially specifically like the dead bodies, the five dead bodies, it was, you know, it's, it was there. It was just kind of like an added add addition to my guilt that I had for Ritzburg, my survivor's guilt that I had for Ritzburg. Okay. Um, it was just kind of, it would feed into the negative thoughts. It would feed into the negative energy coming in, into my it, mind. It was, it was basically your mind attaching that traumatic, to to another uh traumatic thing right but. yeah and it was just compounding it right so but we started to do the emdr treatment and anybody who has ptsd i highly recommend emdmr emd emdr excuse me emdr echo mike <laughs> delta romeo uh and uh because it it does make a difference it makes a huge difference being able to revisit those memories as painful as they are because you start to see details of that time frame and in the surrounding time frame that you didn't see before that maybe you forgot or maybe you blocked out. And that's what I kind of alluded to earlier in my in, in in the talk was that I forgot that I had gone to my platoon sergeant 
and begged for him not to transfer Ritzburg out of my squad. Mm. I fought to keep Ritzburg in my, but I forgot that I had done that. And so I, a lot of the guilt that I was carrying was that I didn't fight for him and that I didn't try to keep him in my squad and that I let him down and I didn't train him properly and all these different things. And so when we were going through the EMDR and I, I real, I remembered that I had gone to my platoon sergeant and, and, and argued with him almost to the point of insubordination (laughs) that, that, you know, Ritzburg needed to stay in the squad. And then as far as the training that maybe I didn't train him well enough because he was part of my squad when we were training, look, you know, we were able to revisit training scenarios and revisit some of the FTXs that we had been on and we're able to revisit how he had progressed from a problem soldier into one that was doing very well in his training and, and was becoming the soldier that, you know, he needed to become. And so a lot of that was, was starting to come to the surface as far as I didn't have to carry that guilt as much. Yeah, because you, know, you, you realize that you actually done as much as you possibly can. I possibly could have, yeah. And it was just the the fate. Just it just it was just the happened. suck. It was just yeah. the suck. Yeah. And and so um and during that time, I'm starting to visit the the Christian small group, you know, a couple of times a week. And it, it was gone for like I think four or five days a week. It was like Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and Monday. You know, we had to do a small group every evening. And so during the days it wasn't, you know, they, they weren't doing that. I was doing, I don't know, yoga or, you know, whatever else was going on. Uh, but it got to a point where whenever Christian small group was going on, I was going to it because I was finding help. I was finding peace in, 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 in the scriptures. I was finding um, understanding, you know, and I was releasing a lot of shame and releasing a lot of guilt because I was also carrying shame and guilt for the way I had acted for the past, you know, 20 Five twenty six years, you know, from you know, from from that adulthood, from the time that yeah, I, a, a lot of the uh, a lot of the uh, uh, the AA or whatever whatever thing you try to get out of your addiction, they they have you go out and uh, deal with other people, uh, apologize. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you're making your amends. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, and that's the thing is that so I started to look at that and be like, you know, I, for all these years. A, I've been carrying guilt I didn't need to be carrying uh, because I, I I refused to get the help that I wanted. So I came up with an, with this thought in my head and I shared it with my doctor, with Marion, and said, you know, what I've realized during this time, my stay here is that trauma doesn't care. Trauma doesn't care how much or how little you experience. Trauma is trauma and trauma needs to be addressed, whether it's a large amount whether it's a little amount by your, by your own, you know, cognition, by your own thinking, if you think I've only experienced this much trauma, so I don't need help. That's the lie from the devil himself, you know, saying, you know, trying to keep you like, that's your, that's your mind, you know, saying you're not worthy, right? It can, I'm not saying necessarily it's always from the devil. Like there, we also have our own flesh that we contend with and our own mind and our own psyche that we contend with as well yeah. from, you know, from, from my estimation. And so you have these two things that you struggle with and um you have I, I had to realize that it didn't matter like, yes there's there's guys who have seen you know an you know infinite more amount of evil and trauma and 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 carnage than I've ever seen but that doesn't mean that my trauma doesn't need to be addressed yeah and that's what a lot of people forget 
right. like I said, you know, put the bag, um, put the mask on yourself first. Right. And so that was the thing is that I, I realized that it was okay. That even though by, if I, if I were to compare myself to some of the guys who got the medal of honor, right. You know, then the things that they had to go through and the things that they experienced, uh, because you don't get the medal of honor for showing up, you know, for coffee. Uh, um, if I compare myself to them, then yeah, my, the stuff I experienced doesn't seem to necessarily carry the same weight, but it still carries weight and it still needs to be addressed regardless uh, of the, the intensity of it. And so once I was able to accept that, that I needed to stop comparing my trauma to other people's trauma, and I just needed to address my trauma so that I could live a more full life. Yeah. I was then able to, 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 you know, stop trying to be that tough guy, you know, and stop trying to be uh, so strong. I was weakening myself. You know, it's like, you know, you're, you're, you're holding those muscles, you're holding your muscles so tight that they just become fatigued. And I had to let go and I had to release so that my muscles could relax so that they could build back up. You know, you know, if you constantly, you know, are lifting weights every single day and not giving your body rest, you're going to, you're going to constantly be destroying yourself and wearing yourself down and you'll never get a chance to, to, to recover. And that's kind of what I was doing with my with my trauma was I was constantly fighting, constantly working against my trauma, trying to keep it stuffed down. And I was never the muscles of my psyche were never able to relax and recover and become stronger, you know, having been through it. Yeah, yeah. And, even even when I was doing my uh, uh, martial arts training at the time, they were like, OK, on you're going you're going through this. Uh, you're doing six days a week on uh on on this day yeah don't work out relax let your muscles drink water (laughs) drink water get into a hot bath cold bath whatever you choose and and soak up all that healing oh yeah absolutely uh, yeah so so at the end of the 60 days we had done the emdr and um i was still nervous about going back out like leaving because i mean i'm in a safe environment you know, I've got my structure again, like I did in the military, I've got food, I've got shelter, you know, I, you know, I'm safe, you know, I'm not, I'm I'm not near alcohol, I'm not near the old temptations and all that stuff. I'm in a good place, you know, I'm feeling lighter than I have in decades, Um, you know, happy, happier than I have, than I've been in, you know, than since I could remember from, you know, being a child, you know, I, I was, I was, so I was, I told that, I told that to my doctor. I was like, I'm nervous about leaving. I don't, I don't think I'm ready to go back out into the world. And she's like, well, I, I agree uh, because we've just gone through EMDR and, you know, there's, there are side effects that can potentially come up and you need to be in a safe environment for a while, you know, after that, or at least have somewhere safe that you can be uh, after that. So that if any of the other trauma starts to, starts to rear its ugly head, you're not, you're not out there flapping in the wind. And Basically so doing what that one scene in uh, that one John Milway movie where he just tosses the kid into the pool or pond. Yeah. So. Yeah. That, and that's what they don't want to do. That's why she said that she, that's why we had to get an extension from the VA for an additional 30 days. Cause I was only initially approved for 30 days. So they had to get an extension for an additional 30 days so that we could do the MDR. And then at the end of that, they were like, we still think you need to be in a, in, in a structured environment. So what they had was they have their outpatient program. Well, their outpatient program, you can either do it from home and you drive into the outpatient facility and go to the, go to the therapy, or they have what's called hotel resolutions, which was an old, I think, Marriott at one point over there off of uh, I-30 
uh, between Grand Prairie and Arlington okay. here in the Dallas Fort Worth. So it's an old hotel that they've re retrofitted. Uh, it's structured, you know, you have to, if you want to leave to go get groceries or go to other things, or, you know, you have to get a pass. Um, and, but it's, it's a place it's like 1200 or it's like 1250 a month. Right. And you get, you get a bed, you get cable, you get Wi-Fi, you get food and you say, and you have showers. And so most people share a room with somebody else, but the occasional, occasionally they have single rooms for people uh, like with me, like with PTSD uh, that they'll give a single room to that are having difficulties with their sleep still um, so that they're not disturbing their, their neighbor. And they're not, you know, a, a, a kind of yeah. a, you know, there's, there's a concern of danger, you know, depending on what you might do in your sleep, if you have a, P, you know, a PTSD episode. So having been through the MDR, they decided that I was going to go into one of those rooms. Well, we tried to get the VA to cover it. Uh, but the problem was, was that the outpatient facility and the inpatient facility, though they're both part of American Addiction Centers, they're two different corporations as far as the VA contracting goes. Okay, yeah. So they couldn't use the same contracting number from the inpatient facility for the outpatient facility. And the VA was saying they wanted me to go to the outpatient treatment that the VA offered, and they weren't going to pay for the outpatient at Greenhouse. Well, over the course of 60 days, I had grown to trust American Addiction Centers. I had grown to trust Greenhouse as an entity, as, as an organization. And I still had mistrust with the VA because I'd been a cop for them. And I'd seen how some of those guys get treated when they go to therapy and stuff. And I was not comfortable going into the VA for help at that point. I just think you had, you've seen a lot of bad experience. No, nothing like that actually happens. <laughs> um, yeah, that's what they say. But, yeah. uh, <laughs> but um, so, you know, in their charity, um, Greenhouse, you know, the, 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 the CEO actually put me in for a scholarship for the outpatient portion for the actual treatment. Oh, okay. So they, they actually covered my bill for 30 days, for the 30 days of outpatient at the therapy for the therapy. I still had to come up with 12, you know, 1250 for rent at the hotel though. And at the time I really didn't have the money for it. So I'm trying to figure out where I'm going to get this money. I'm talking to my parents. It's so, and, but what's funny is my mom's at work. Uh, she she's a, a certified occupational therapist assistant. She's been doing that for like 30, 40 years or something. So, but she's at work and she's talking to one of her friends about the things I'm going through. She's, you know, kind of needing having somebody that she can lean on, you know, kind of a shoulder that she can lean on. Yeah. And so she's telling this lady about it and she didn't know this at the time, but the lady had received an inheritance from her father passing and, but she wasn't using the inheritance for herself. She was using the inheritance for causes that she felt that she believed in and oh, that she wanted to support. So she was giving to charities and different organizations. And when she heard my story, she offered to pay for my stay at the Hotel Resolutions. And so she covered my entire stay at Hotel Resolutions from the inheritance. And so again, I'm seeing God's providence at this point saying, yes, I agree. You need to be here. You need to be in this situation. You need to continue your therapy because i prayed i was praying to god i was like god if this is what you want make it make a way happen because i i don't i don't see i don't see a way i don't see how this is going to happen i don't have the money for it i don't have the ability to do it and in both in both ways the both the therapy and the residency he covered without me having to pay a dime awesome. and yeah so i mean it's just again and I, I had seen confirmation throughout that first the first 60 days and this is just more confirmation that this is i'm on the right track that this is what God is wanting, that he's blessing it and he is making it happen 
without me having to do a whole lot at all, except just obey just follow his lead and he'll get me through this. So while I was in that 60 days uh, at the inpatient, I kept hearing about CR over and over again. And I started thinking about it. I was like, maybe I should try it out because they kept talking about celebrate recovery as one of the options when you get out. And I remember Michael and it dawned on me. I was like, I wonder if it's a coincidence that the guy who came up to me and introduced himself as Michael told me about CR and the archangel in the Bible was named Michael. <laughs> Just it was a random thought, but I was yeah. like, is that was that was that Michael the archangel that he, you know, he wasn't really there for anything except me? I mean, I don't know. But I know that's kind of silly, but you know, I just the thought entered my mind. But I but I knew that I needed to go to CR. And so while I was in the outpatient, you have a couple of weeks where or a couple a few days where you kind of get oriented and they de they determine whether or not you're in a good place to be able to leave on passes. Well, I was able to get permission to start leaving on passes uh, because I wanted to go to celebrate recovery instead of AA. And there was a celebrate recovery down the road uh, through Central Bible Church. Central Bible Church is a is a non-denominational church uh, over here in uh, Fort Worth on the border of Fort Worth and Arlington on East Chase and I-30. And every Thursday from 6.30 to 9, they have Celebrate Recovery. And so I was able to get a pass. And one of the guys, another guy named Brian, but he spelled it with an I. So, you know, there's that. <laughs> mm -hmm. But uh, he and I would get passes. And every Thursday I had my Jeep because I lived in the area. He was from up north. And we would just get in my Jeep and we would drive out there. And the first day that I went in to Celebrate Recovery, it felt good. Like it felt like home. Like I felt like I'm, this was where, this is what I, you know, I, I should have done this sooner. Like AA wasn't working for me because a generic higher power, even if I named my high power Jesus in AA, the the camaraderie within the AA commute for me, it was, I may have a sponsor who doesn't believe in Jesus, who doesn't believe, you know, in, in uh, you know, because some of the things that they would talk about in some of the AA meetings I went to was like, you can make this coffee cup your higher power. You can make that doorknob your higher Anything can be your higher power. It doesn't have to be God for the atheists in the group and stuff. And and I was just like, this, that doesn't make sense to me. If I'm going to yeah. believe in a higher power. I'm not going to believe in something I can, you know, like a light bulb, I can switch on and off. I want a higher power that's actually a higher power <laughs> that I don't control. And so, um when I went to celebrate recovery and listened to the, um, uh, the, the, I think that night it was a testimony night. Uh, they, there is some similarity between CR and AA. They have a testimony night and they have a lesson night. And so it goes back and forth and stuff, but we started off with worship. So we had worship songs, we're singing, um, you know, I, I'm showing up brand new, don't know anybody there. And everybody's welcoming me and this and my friend, Brian, as though we're old friends, coming home from you know we, that they hadn't seen in a long time like they're just they didn't they didn't pry they didn't ask they're just like hey man welcome we're glad you're here you know hugging and handshaking and just genuinely glad to see people there and, yeah. and i was like i had never experienced that within church culture you know yes there were people who were glad to see us when we went to church but it wasn't so overwhelmingly everybody <laughs> just everybody coming up out of the woodwork to welcome people in and the, so i was like this is awesome and so i had we had what's called Newcomers 101, which is where your first meeting, you sit down with uh, some of the leaders in in the Celebrate Recovery, and they kind of tell you what the structure's like, what we do, and all that stuff. And so it starts off with worship, then we have testimony, or, or we have um, a lesson, then you can pick a small group, whether it's uh, life issues, you know, stuff like life issues, be like codependency, um, you know, uh, sexual addiction, 
uh, things like that. You have addictions of all kind. That, that's another group is addictions. So sexual addiction, uh, alcohol, drugs, whatever, whatever addictions you're facing, there's a group for that. Um, and then we, at our group, we have a welcome home section where the welcome home is specifically geared towards veterans. And that group covers everything from life issues to addictions to whatever it is. It's because it's, it's for veterans, you know, veterans only that mm -hmm. they come in. And so whatever you're dealing with, whether it's marriage issues, whether it's gambling, whether it's, you know, lust or pornography, you know, or, or alcohol or drugs, all of it is welcome in that group because we're veterans helping veterans. Um, and it's, you know, it's great. And I've just continued down that path. I ended up doing my 12 steps. I, I had everybody in, in AA was always like, do your 12 steps, do your 12 steps. I just never had the desire or motivation. I didn't want to sponsor from them. I didn't want anything from them. But when I got to CR, I wanted it. You know, I met a guy there. Um, he became my first sponsor. Uh, he too, uh, veteran and law enforcement. And that's why I wanted him as a sponsor because he could speak to the same experiences that I could. And yeah, he was very, very instrumental in getting me going and getting me started. Uh, he invited me to uh, a, an AA group on Tuesdays that he went to for first responders out at Fort Behavioral uh, over in uh, Fort Worth. Uh, and it's on Tuesdays at uh, 630, first responders, retirees or active show up and, you know, it's kind of like it started off as an AA group, but then my sponsor and I and the guy who runs it kind of talked about it. And we're like, well, what if we were to change that into more of a CR type structure where it can be anything, not just cops dealing with alcohol, but cops, you know, and first responders dealing with alcohol, drugs, porn addiction, you know, marital issues issues gambling whatever whatever they're experiencing they have a place that they can go and we can talk about it so it's it's loosely structured on cr it's not quite the same because it's not a christ-centered group necessarily it's a higher power aa type group but it, it, it's welcoming more than just alcoholism within the first responder community so we started doing that and i found the more i did the more i helped the more i served the the more invested i got and the more at peace i got and um, having dealt with a lot of the, the things that, 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 you know, through therapy that I needed to and finding my strength in my faith and finding my strength in Jesus again, and, and re realizing that I didn't have to be that guy anymore. The guy that I was for like the, the past few decades or past couple of decades, I don't have to carry him with me. I can just leave him in the past. I can make my amends. I can make my apologies whether they accept it or not, it's not on me, but I can attempt, right, and do all these things. And I can turn my life, you know, by the grace of God and through his power, I can turn it into something that I always felt like it should be. And that's glorifying him. Because I used to use scripture when I was in the in the height of my, of my depravity. I would twist scripture to justify my actions because I knew it well enough. You know, the devil knows the scriptures. I knew it well enough to twist it to justify what I was doing and make it seem right when it when it wasn't. Yeah. And so now I wanted to actually espouse what I believed, not twist it so that it conformed to my actions, but conform my actions to the scriptures and and to what I actually believe. And ever since I started, it's been tough. It's been tough. You know, I've had some slips over the past year because it's been about a little over a year since I started going to CR. Had a couple of slip ups, uh, you know, with different things, you know, wrong thinking and, you know, different uh, situations. But every time, you know, I come back, you know, and, 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 I, and I expose it and I talk about it with my small group and I talk about it with my sponsor, with my old sponsor left. And so I have a new sponsor now. 
and he helped me work through the 12 steps and it's just then there, there's never frustration at least not from what i've experienced every time that i stumbled or, or, or slipped and anytime anybody i've seen anybody else stumble or slip sometimes in, in alcoholics anonymous you might get that that sponsor who's a little more you know tough or, or a group that's a little more tough and like they get, start to get frustrated with your slipping not once have i seen them act that way they're just i'm just glad you're back i'm glad you're here what do we need to do you know let's move forward you know let's put it behind us um and there's so much grace uh in this group like it reminds me when i when i read about how the apostles in the new testament talk about what the church is supposed to be cr at least my experience with CR is that this is the way the church is supposed to be. <laughs> no judging in the sense that if you're actively trying to, you know, fend off these these things, these 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 demons or these these traumas or these experiences, they're not going to, you know, look down on you and they're going to welcome you every single time, no matter how many times it takes. And um, it's just been a blessing. And I I can't speak highly enough of it. I speak about it on my YouTube channel often, <laughs> but I, I realized that that day, July 9th, 2021, was the day that I tried to commit suicide. And that day, I needed to be there. I needed to be in that moment. I needed to be so broken, so beaten down, and so just completely decimated so that God, I'd allow God back in to build me back up, just like johnny was talking about earlier that you know breakdown to build up he had tried to warn me over the years numerous times i kept feeling him numerous times you're not doing this this isn't good you're going to get hurt you're going to get you're going to cause more pain more, more problems and i ignored and ignored and ignored so he finally said all right you know here it is you know you're going to break yourself down to the point where you have no other choice but to come to me or die and he prevented the death <laughs> So that, you know, I would be broken to the point where I would come back to him. And it's just, it's been amazing. Like I'm still, I mean, I'm, I'm not living high on the hog by any means. You know, I, I was blessed enough that the VA did give me disability, um, you know, and, and a rating. And so I am covered medically and stuff. And I do get some income from them. Um, and I have resources now that I can get into a second career through voc rehab and stuff. And so I can start building my life back at 39 years old. <laughs> from complete you know decimation where you know, looking at from the outside i was on track to having a beautiful perfect life to complete nothingness and now i'm in that build back you know mode yeah i'm about to <clears throat> i'm about to turn 45 this weekend i'm on my third marriage yeah i feel like i finally got it right yeah and, and that's well, I'm 44 so hey, hey, hey trust me hey, it's it's a roller coaster. Sometimes sure. you get off, sometimes you gotta get back on. You forgot your hat, you know. Well, and what's what's neat too, right? Is uh, as I obeyed and as I as I submitted to the convictions that I was being given, and as I started serving more and serving more, um, I was given an opportunity to become a leader in CR, and so I'm now I'm part of the leadership. Um, one of the one of the you know. Uh, oftentimes I'll be like a co-leader for welcome home and, you know, uh, but I, you know, that's where we met at the outreach there at uh, yeah. the vet fest, you know, I'm there with a couple of the other leaders for the group. And, um, it's just, you know, the more I, you know, they talk about like, you know, if you want to keep what you have, you have to give it away. You know, AA talks about that all the time. Like serving is 
one of the most vital things, whether it's in AA, whether it's in a, 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 a there's like Buddhist Alcoholics Anonymous, there's secular, you know, recovery programs, there's, there's Celebrate Recovery, there's tons of different recovery programs out there, but every single one of them will tell you, service, do something, serve well, there, something. There's a reason for that. <clears throat> Uh, uh, AA, the development of AA was uh, uh, the original thing was two guys. They, they were alcoholics. They couldn't, they couldn't stop. They tried everything to stop. They tried every, what it ended up happening is like, Hey, let's try to help each other out. Do you call me if you want to go get a drink? I'll call you if I want to yeah. get a drink. And, that, and that's, that's the basis and the, the growth of that organization. It, it's, what a lot of people don't understand is like, oh, I can live uh, live by myself, and then and then and then that's getting the, the attitude nowadays because isolation isolation is the worst thing you can do if you're an addict. Yes, no, isolation <clears throat> is the worst thing you can do as a human being. We're social creatures. Right. There, there, there's no ifs ands buts about. And that's it. and that's part of that service because when you serve, you're with people. Yeah, if you serve within AA or you serve within Celebrate Recovery or any of the other groups that are out there, when you serve within them. You're with people who have been through the road, been down the road you're going through or haven't been through. And when you have those demons start to try to rise back up inside you, they're 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 coming alongside you and you you have you have backup, right? You have your reinforcement yeah, hey. on hand. And it's also the community the basis on that too is the comfortability uh comfortability. Mm -hmm. When you go up to a group of people, like like I do comedy on on Mondays and I'll I'll talk to certain people, but a lot uh, one one of them actually came by and is like, "Hey, dude, you talk to everybody, but you end up just hanging out by yourself." It's like y'all don't talk like me. <laughs> y'all comedians, yeah, y'all pretty funny, but y'all don't talk like me. Yeah. And like, what do you mean by that? I have offended each and every one of those comics because <laughs> they don't understand the right. the, the remnants. They, they, the gallows, the gallows humor. <laughs> yes and, and it, sure. it's to the point to where i was like me and johnny we the way the way we got together it was it was not by chance i reached out to uh to talk about what was it camp boot oh, camp base camp Lindsay. base camp Lindsay. it's this organization I don't even still think they – I know the organization is still al alive and well here, but they still haven't completed their mission. No. And I got with him because uh, – well, what's her – God, she's, if she hears this, she's going to – Marissa? Marissa, yeah. <clears throat> and it was just one of those chances I saw uh, her doing this charity. I asked a couple uh, – I asked my father-in-law – I asked my father and I asked my brother-in-law and they're like, yeah, we went to the, a charity th uh, dinner to do that. I was like, okay, I guess it's a real charity. So I asked him, she, he came along because she was scared because she's a woman and we won't get into all that. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, but I ended up meeting him. He's a host now. We're close friends, and he knows I can count on him, and he knows I can. Oh, right. He knows I. Can. I mean, to put it to put it in perspective, the <clears throat> the first time that I came back to film with him after we did the interview about Basecamp Lindsay, 
we talked for four and a half hours. He split it up into three episodes and it has <laughs> taken off from there. And, and it's like, and now we've got Chris Jacka who sometimes, uh, well, well, more times than not now he'll co-host with our sports show that we film on Tuesday nights. And <clears throat> they beat up Bobby. You, you want to yeah, I mean, put it out there? They you want to talk about you? You want to talk about putting David out in the middle of nowhere? <laughs> <laughs> just taking it like a champ. Chris Jacka. Chris Jacka was he was an infantryman, just like I was. Actually, you met him. So, uh, the black, uh, the guy that was uh, the BRCC fund. BRCC. He's a big guy, big bushy beard, wore black rifle coffee stuff. Yes. Okay. That was yeah, yeah. That was a co-host. Okay. Cool. Yeah. We we constantly, and we don't even mean to do it. Sometimes it just happens. Like, just beat up on David, and <laughs> <laughs> he takes it. He takes it like a champ. So I mean, it's. I mean, that's that's that. But that's the thing, right? Is that uh, within the veteran community, it's always funny. Um, you know, the we'll give each other a hard time, but. You know, somebody from the outside, if they're if they're not a veteran and they try to talk crap about the Air Force, you know, we're like, who are you to talk crap about the Air Force <laughs> when you're not, you know, you didn't even have the gumption to 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 join up yourself, any of them. I've only so, done that, that that instance once. <laughs> and I was like, guy, guy, you were literally threatening to put me in the trash, but now you're willing to kill for me. I'm like, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's confusing, but let's do this. <laughs> Yeah, that's the thing. Right. Is, I mean, you know, Army Army gives a hard time to Air Force. You know, Marines give a hard time to pretty much everybody. Everybody gives a hard time to the Navy. <laughs> Man, it's still a thing. I still don't want to. Yeah. I, is, I was like, I was talking to a Navy guy. He's like, I'm going to I'm gonna beat you to death. I was like, please don't. I don't mm -hmm. want to beat on my headstone that a seaman killed me. <laughs> He, he he was like. I mean, Dave, David uh, was giving me crap because the Air Force I was drowned by Seaman Chief Trophy yeah. this year. You know, so Air Force Air Force not only beat Navy, but they beat Army, so they got the CIC Trophy, right? Yeah. And I'm just sitting there going, "Wow, though." It, yeah, we're we're not going to talk about that. <laughs> but somebody paid somebody. You off. know, no. We are rich, but we're 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 acceptable. The point is, it's like, okay, so we're having a conversation in text messages yesterday because David puts this video in our in our message thread about this meat glue called Mooglu, right? It's like a collagen-based whatever, right? And we start talking about different ideas and concoctions that we can glue together meat-wise and throw into a smoker. And I came up with the whole brisket-wrapped goat. Right, so okay. that's only sounds because sounds amazing. That does sound great. And then, and then right. I was like, you know, and and Chris had said something about, you know, well, as long as Army beats Navy, blah blah blah. No, that was me. So here comes David. <laughs> was that you? Because then you followed it up with a gift from the Joker, going, and here we go. Oh no! Yeah. What I said, what I said is like we'll probably do it on, on the day that Navy beats Army. Oh, and that's what it was. That's, I think that's where you got. That's, that's that's what it was. See, because I refuse. I I have um, situational dyslexia. When I see people put Navy in front of Army, I'm like, I my brain doesn't register that. Mm -hmm. 
So context, my dad was a Navy guy, 20 year Navy man. I grew up a Navy brat. I joined the army. We don't watch the game together. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, and it's on the bucket list to go see one of these games in person. And my dad said, yeah, we can go to the game together, but we're sitting on opposite sides of the stadium. I was like, okay. You know, I want to be a fly on the wall car that you go you go back to go back home with. Oh, we don't even talk it like it, it doesn't matter who wins. We have a standing rule that we do not talk about the game. Yeah. Because inevitably somebody is going to get pissed. Oh no, and you it's like this? Not at all. You don't you don't oh. like you don't go on the lines of dissecting it to the point to where you're making a point but it's irrational but i still go okay yeah you're right so just to shut you up not nothing nothing (laughs) nothing you don't do that dude at all i mean i don't have like a box that you were seriously sauced that my name was called for this box of an axe from Black Rifle Coffee. By, by, by the way, that was that's a two hundred dollar axe that I got for Ooh, free. Nice. Because I won I won this thing. I mean, he got the coffee and, and stuff, but nothing, nothing. We we're we're wonderfully friends and we don't do anything harmful to each other. <laughs> What's that red dot coming from? <laughs> But anyways, the, but that's how we send it. <laughs> Damn it! But that that that's I mean we have the but but when it comes around to uh, Johnny has some personal issues in his life with his new wife that they weren't even married and was I the first person you called after uh, he passed? Yeah. No, uh, you were one of the first people. I mean, yeah. uh, I mean, of course, I called my folks. All right, so what we we're talking about is um, it's my, not my wife first or anything on this. It's no, just, it's it's I was, fine. I was it's still fine. It's fine. Yeah. so my wife. She she had a special needs child. He had um, he had some he had some s- several conditions and. She was told that when he was born, he wouldn't live to be, you know, wouldn't live past the age of two. Well, here it is, Christmas Day last year. I mean, he's not too much further away from turning 11. So we're like eight and a half years past the point where she said, you know, hey, look, just be prepared. And um, he passes away on Christmas morning last year. Hmm. And... I mean, I called my I called my parents, told them what was going on, um, and then I called David, and you know, I mean, there's a lot. I mean, just like I know that you have on my journey coming from the darkest place to where we are now. I mean, there's been milestones, there's been hurdles, and there has been some definite mountains to climb. And, you know, it's, it's, it's about that, that 
camaraderie. It's it's about that esprit de corps, mm-hmm. and you know, and and one of the things that I have found with my day to day coping is that it's like I can't shut myself off from. I can't isolate myself. Because, yeah. like you said, it's the worst thing. Absolutely, and. I mean, even if you're not, I mean, even if you're just, I mean, even if you, if, even if it's like, okay, I'm not an alcoholic or I'm not addicted to porn or, or this, that, and the other isolation, you know, no sub Mm -hmm. yeah. Isolation in general is just like all that closet that we keep locked up needs is for somebody to jiggle the handle. Yep. You know, and and then never, yeah, you know, and, and it's like, you know, they start beating on the door and it just, they, they don't need to be in the room. They just need to know that need you to know that their presence is being felt. And, and it's, and it's having people like sponsors or having people like, uh, you know, uh, the coworkers that, that have the same mindset or have had somewhat same, you know, in the same experiences. I think that that's vitally important. For sure. And, and, it, and to also on the backside of it, just like when we were on active duty, it's like you have to have that support network at home. It's yep. it's vitally, vitally important that, you know, you have people in your life that understand, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and that are supportive. Absolutely. And, you know, and, and I'll tell you what, if it wasn't for my parents, mm-hmm. wasn't for my kids, um, you know, and if it wasn't for my wife, her sister, you know, I really, I don't want to put, I, I don't like, I don't like putting a lot of thought into thinking about where I would be without right. them there. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's a, definitely, I can speak to that as well, because if it weren't for my parents and my best friend growing up, I have a, my best friend, his name is Eric. Uh, we grew up next door to each other uh, when we were kids. He we, he moved in, I think, when I was about, you know, we, he was either three or I was three. Anyway, we've known each other for over three, you know, over three decades. Like, we've been best friends for over three decades. Um, even when I left and went military and stuff, like, we would go years without talking. And as soon as we'd start talking, it's like we, you know, picked up right where we left off. You know, we've always been that kind of friendship. And when I started struggling with my addiction uh, from the very start, from the very beginning, because he had dealt with his addiction, he had dealt with some addictions of his own and, um, you know, going to groups and rehab and all that stuff. And so he was there every, not a veteran, never served uh, in the military, came from, his dad did, you know, came from his brother served, but, but he, he also, you know, having been raised by, people who were military and then his brother was military and stuff. He could empathize at least somewhat, but he was there every single time I called every single time I called every single time I needed something and times that I didn't think I needed help. He was still there and, and providing me the help that I didn't think I needed, but he was still you know, one calling. Hey, let's go do something. Hey, let's go. I got a soccer game. Come watch, you know, getting my butt out, <laughs> keeping me from being isolated, from isolating myself, knowing that that was not, what needed to happen and then he uh he actually married um uh someone and she 
very similar experiences. They both are just an amazing, amazing couple. And she's always, you know, she's the kind of kind of wife that like plans things, plans a lot of things. And she's always sure to to, you know, her and her, you know, her and Eric are both sure to always try to invite me to whatever it is that they're doing just to make sure I'm not isolating myself, you know, because sometimes, you know, I think, you know, I can, again, speaking for me specifically, I can do it on accident. It's not that I actively seek out to be isolated. I've always been this way. I've never been the planner on things. I've always been the guy that's up for whatever. You know, if you want to do something, let's go do it. I'll, if you want to go, you know, skateboard in the middle of the night, let's go. But I'm not the one suggesting it. They're the one suggesting it. Like, and I'm the one grabbing the board and running out the door. <laughs> they they bring it up and I'm like, let's do it. And but I'm yeah. never the one, I'm never the one suggesting. So I've always been in that side of things. I've always been kind of the follower when it came to going out and doing things. Um, but then when we're doing it, you know, I'm out in front leading the charge. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I end up so, doing that way too much too. So yeah, my wife is so much the planner. Yeah. yeah, it's definitely a good thing. And that's not not that, that that's the reason why my second marriage failed. You know, obviously, there's many reasons why my second marriage failed. Um, but um that was one of the points of contention in my second marriage was that I was not someone who planned a whole lot of dates and planned a whole lot of family activities. She did a lot of that stuff, and so that was a lot of burden that she was carrying that was a point of contention at another one point or another during the marriage, but, but yeah, it's, it, the isolation leads to, des, you know, desolation. That's what it is. Yeah. You know, if you don't, if, you know, cause if, if anybody who's out there, who's listening to this program, if you're concerned about someone in your life that uh, may be having a problem with PTSD or alcohol or drugs or anything, you know, and you're, but you're not sure if they're struggling with it. You're not hundred percent sure if, you know, if they're just, you know, being moody or if they're actually struggling with something, watch them. When they start drinking and when they start partying, do they, you know, are they, are they, are they part of the life of the party or are they initially part of that? But then they start to drift away. Cause that's how I did it. When we would do our parties before I, before I started drinking every single day, you know, the signs were there that I was isolating myself. And she even would comment on it from time to time, my second ex-wife. Uh, we would have parties at the house, you know, and all our friends would come over. It's a great time. Everybody's laughing, having a good time. And I start off that way. But the more I drank, the more I started to distance myself. And I would end up in the garage, smoking cigars by myself, drinking alone while everybody's in the house or in the backyard having a good time. And I would isolate myself. Um, part of that was my PTSD, um, large crowds, a lot, a lot of noise and stuff like that, um, because of some of the riots and stuff that we, we dealt with, uh, you know, both on both tours, but uh, in the, like the large crowds and crowded areas, you know, a lot of stress and stuff that, you know, it wasn't like anything happened in, in those particular instances, as far as like the riots and, you know, crowds and stuff, but you're always like on edge and you're taught to be on edge and on the lookout, you know, in those moments. And so it was learning how to let go of some of that. I hadn't done that yet. And so when large crowds started to get too much, I would begin to isolate myself. But there was also a warning, a, tail, a warning sign that that there's a potential for abuse here because I'm isolating myself and I'm not, you know, surrounding myself with happiness. I'm, I'm going back into my negative space and I'm going back into my negative feelings and 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 all that. And so if, if you're seeing that during group events or during social events, 
someone starts to pull away, that's a sign. It's not the only sign. There's many signs, but that's a sign to kind of keep an eye out for. Not everybody's going to be that way. Some people put on that brave face all the time and they'll be part of that life of the party. And then it's when everybody's gone that they go into that isolation mode. So, but, but isolation is definitely one of the, one of the key um, indicators that somebody's struggling with something. You may not know what, but they're struggling with something. Yeah. I mean, I, I do that only because I can't, uh, too much century stuff yeah yeah, yeah. And, I, and i'm about to go out and uh start a pool uh go into a pool uh tournament yeah all i stopped going to bars not because you know i'm an alcoholic or they, it was they play the music way too loud and i'm just getting that yes. age where i don't want to listen to it like i don't it, it it bashes my uh my head it's like uh <clears throat> just recently she she has she has a lot of problems with uh uh over simulation or just noises in general. You know, she's at an age where she can't figure everything out. But she's hold on a second, I gotta take a phone call. Hold on. Okay, go, go, go. Uh but it was it was one of those situations it's like, why why is my ears ringing when I'm crying? I was like, scientifically, this is what it is. Yeah, your crying is actually causing a high blood pressure. Right. Your heart's racing and mm -hmm. that's going in your ear right and she's like oh wait oh i thought it was like something totally different i was like no nah, once you explain okay. something on but yeah. once you once you actually rationally realize something sure it's 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 like oh i was like uh i was talking to a guy because i got an open policy uh, I, I'll put these videos out, and I keep constantly t uh, telling everybody. It was like, "Hey, we got a Facebook, we got an Instagram page." I, I check my uh, uh, comments constantly. Uh, the I, I, I'm on a TikTok. I'm, I'm on all these. Right. Have a problem? Reach out. I, I, I've had a couple of people to reach out. I had one re person reach out, and he was having uh, really bad dreams. He was reliving the instance, and he was like. I don't know what it, why I don't, I was like, okay, well, well let, let's dissect this. Uh, are you in a lot of stress right now? I was like, mm, well, we moved into a new house. Okay. But that, that's one indication you have, you have a lot of stress. Uh, another in indication is sometimes when you have a lot of stress, you're, I want to say walls because that's the only way we can actually visualize it is, is just the, the visualization of a wall that we built up on that situation. You forgot about it, but in all reality, what's happening is is your you know, the chemicals in your brain is actually connecting one thing uh, uh, stressed out, and it's connecting to another thing you were stressed out at one point in time, and that's why you're reliving that. Uh, you can do the same thing with music if you want to like re like uh, a music that you heard when your first dance with your first love. You mm -hmm. can relive that moment if you remember that song. And you can you can play that song and the euphoria and the dopamines, all that stuff. It, if a person can do it right, I mean, they can get really addicted to that kind of stuff. It's like, hey, I'll, I'll listen to this music and I'll listen to this song constant, constant, constantly. And I, I've been doing. It's one of those things is you start researching this type of stuff because I've always been interested in in my brain after finding out my great grandmother was uh, diagnosed all time uh, Alzheimer's. My dad's has signs of it. My granny is definitely has signs of it. 
and I wanted to figure out, you know, ways to uh, stop that. And there, there's a couple of ways that you can stop it that people's put out there, but most of the time it doesn't really work. And this is the same thing I wanted to do with this uh, is like uh, Fortress of Solitude with Superman. I'm putting all my stuff in all the all the people that can help me out with the the situations, knowledge that I get from other people. Uh, yeah. if my daughter at one day goes, I wonder what my dad means, and she'll go down through what is the big library now, yeah. uh, data, <clears throat> and hopefully that will help her out, or it just helps somebody else out. Yeah, absolutely. That's kind of what why I do. You know, my my own little project is you know a lot of it's about you know Christianity and a lot of about faith and stuff, but um, you know, it's it's a window into me and who I am now because everybody's seen who I was, everybody's seen who I became and, you know, the, the despicable, the, the despicable person I became. And I don't want to be that person anymore. And I don't want to leave that legacy for my children. And so while they see a change in me now, and I'm brutally honest with them, you know, they, they know my struggles. I, I at first, I, at first I didn't want to tell them about it. But then more, I realized, I was like, even though they're young, because my my oldest is 13 and my youngest is four, obviously my four-year-old doesn't know a whole lot of anything right now, but the ones in between, they know a lot more about what I've been through than many children probably do about their parents having gone through something like this. And I tell them that because I, I try to explain to them, remember that guy? Remember that guy in Saginaw that was drinking all the time? Remember that guy that was always angry? Remember that guy that was always yelling? Um do I seem like that guy anymore? And they're like, no. And I was like, well, here's what here's what changed. And I would give them all the things that I've done that that's, that 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 I've been blessed with as far as my therapy and as far as my faith and all of that. And here's where where I found that that peace and that restoration, so that they can see that. But also, I do the the YouTube thing so that later on, when they're older and they're ready to hear some of the some of the other things that I that I'm, I'm I've worked on and and whatnot. Even if I'm long gone, even if I'm, you know, if, if my time has come, they'll still have access to me and be able to watch, you know, me teaching and 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 and, and me learning and growing. Because my channel is not just about me teaching other people, but my channel is about people coming in and engaging in conversation. I want I want people to come in and comment on things, and we can have discussions, and I want all that stuff there, and just be open for everyone to see. Because the whole idea behind it was that we grow together, not. We don't, we don't ever grow when we're by ourselves. We don't ever, we become stagnant when we're isolated. And so reaching out into social media and creating these channels and creating these podcasts and all these things that we're, that a lot of us are doing, it's our way of being able to reach out, you know, you know, to, to anybody out there who might be feeling the same thing or going through the same thing and letting them know that their story uh, doesn't have to end the way they think it does, that, that people can come alongside you and want to come alongside you it's not a burden it's it's a it's an honor and a privilege for us to come alongside each other and and guide each other through those darkest moments i mean when we were in the military um you know and we were to think about it like if, even for those who have never been to combat when you were training in com you know, training for whatever you know combat exercises that you might be doing in whatever service branch you're in if you're a part of the the backup force and the units out there in the training environment and they're coming under heavy fire and you're called in. Are you like, ah, oh, crap. Now I got to go help these guys out. Cause they can't, 
they can't help themselves. Or you're like, man, let's go, let's roll. We, our brothers and sisters are in danger. We're going to roll out. We're going to handle this. And it's the same thing. And that's the thing that, 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 that where I was, was that I didn't want to be a burden to anybody, whether it was to my brothers and sisters, that are veterans, to my family, to the VA, to anybody, not realizing that it was, it, it, they wanted to, it wasn't a burden. It was, it was a, it was a passion. It was a desire to, to be the same reinforcements in a combat situation as it is in an emotional situation. And that, you know, anybody who would look at it as a burden, they're not the ones that are going to respond. <laughs> the ones that are going to respond and be there for you are the ones that are there because they want to be there and they want to love you through it. Yeah. Well, uh, we've been, we've been, this is like a two hours and 30 minute mark. Usually, usually when a person wants to talk about themselves, it usually goes this long. <laughs> yeah. I, I can tend to rant to, with the best of them. So oh, that, 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 that's you fine. and me both brother. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm surprised, uh, Johnny didn't talk as much. You, usually, usually the, uh, the, the problem that David and I run into is that, uh, we'll, we'll start an episode on one topic and, Within fifteen to twenty minutes, we're we're on the opposite side of the stadium. Yeah. I, I watched yeah. one of y'all's. I watched one of y'all's shows on uh, um, what was it? Uh, the Watcher. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. The 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 yes. series. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I watched I watched that one, and I was like, yeah, I mean, get that. I think I I think I commented on it because you guys were trying to figure out what it was, but when yeah. the cops uh, stack charges. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, but I was I was watching it. I was like, yep. Yeah, Yep, he's exactly the way he described it at the vet fest. They they can have a little rant here and there, and they get back on topic eventually. Yeah, but yeah. but yeah, if I, if I may, if we're gonna, you, you should check out you should check out our sports show. Oh, I will. That I will. is an ant. Guys... I I have my I have my thirteen year old come on every week. Oh my god, the joke was this funny this week. <laughs> and he it's it's joke time with Colin. So nice. yeah, he has. He has his own introduction. Are they dad jokes? I know. I love that. I'm going to tell the joke from last week. I'm going to tell the joke. Yeah, go ahead and tell the joke from last week. Okay. Husband and wife is watching TV. Husband keeps on uh, switching from uh, golf to porn, golf to porn, golf to porn. Off the porn, the wife gets frustrated. She screams out, "Would you stop changing the channels? Just stick it up on the porn because you already know how to play golf." <laughs> oh that's good yeah i got, I got these one are you. jokes that my 13 okay. year old are telling yeah i got a joke for you so a cop came up to me the other day and said he was looking for a man with one eye i said you know it'd probably go faster if you use both my oldest son is a cop <laughs> in amarillo and i'm going to tell him that <laughs> But if if I may, just if you will indulge me, yeah, this, uh, give um, us all your, uh, give us all the places that we can reach you. Uh, anybody can reach oh, you. Really. Well, I wasn't I wasn't going to talk about that, but I will if you will if you let me. But uh, I was going to talk more about CR. If anybody's heard about, you know, they they've heard this today and they and they think that CR Celebrate Recovery might be something that they're interested in. Um, there's there's website. You know, you can go to you know Celebrate Recovery. Just Google it and go and they'll have a map uh, like a find find CR. And you can put in your uh, your uh, zip code or your address, and it'll show you all the CR, the Celebrate Recovery groups in your area with contact information for the person who's leading those groups. And they can give you the times and dates and locations and all that stuff if they've changed and whatnot. Um, one thing I found is that sometimes the website, because it is 
a you know a charity organization. It's not you know a for profit thing. It's self funded, just like AA is. Uh, sometimes the website's not always up to date when it comes to the groups. So if one group doesn't answer, reach out to another because uh, the, the groups are most of them are still up and running, but some of them because of COVID kind of fell to the wayside. You know, attendance kind of went you know sideways during COVID. So um, feel free to uh, you know reach out you know, through the website and you get plugged into a celebrate recovery. If you think that that's something that you are interested in, uh, and it doesn't have, you don't have to be a Christian to go to celebrate recovery. Uh, if it's just something you want to check out anybody and everybody's welcome uh, to come to the group. Um, and, and yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely different. So, um, you know, it starts off again with worship. So be prepared <laughs> in the very beginning, they're yeah. going to sing songs and stuff. But uh, but yeah, so please, if anybody thought that that was interesting, by all means, uh, there's always room. And I'll put the link in the description for everybody. Uh, right. Let's I, I forgot to do that on the then, best video. I I got to go back and redo that stuff. But anyways, and then with my stuff, it's uh, it's way follower fellowship. I have a YouTube channel. Uh, like I said, it's mostly about Christian theology and doctrine uh, right now. I haven't started this, this new series, but I'm going to start a new series on uh, all the great councils, uh, starting with the Council of Nicaea uh, and moving forward and talking about the actual, what actually happened happened during these councils, because there's a lot of misinformation about Christianity and Constantine and the New Testament and all that stuff. But it's a lot of that. And then uh, there's some, I do like metaphors and parables. I have stuff about um, early church in the Lord's Prayer, Apostles' Creed, but stuff like that. So if that's interesting, uh, I'm on, you know, Way Follower Fellowship on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok. It's all over the place. Okay. So feel free to hit me up there. If you want to email me, it's wayfollowerfellowship at gmail.com. That's my uh, my email. So, yeah. Yeah, we'll put all that in the uh, description. But other than that, everybody, thank you for listening. Thank you for watching. Hope you all have a wonderful day and peace. Later, guys.